The Mere and the Curse of Camelot book is now available to buy on Amazon Prime. The link is in the details. Mere and the Curse of Camelot Camelot, the year 634. Morgana flew over the castle, turning the hearts of her terrified enemies to stone. Somewhere in the darkness, a knight ran for his life as fire and lightning crashed down around him. Reaching the safety of the forest, he paused, opened his hands and allowed a strange wind to carry the sealed letter through the air and towards the dungeon of the castle. Chapter 1. Stickney Piggott Somewhere there's a tree with a bookcase inside. It will take you to the place where the forgotten people hide. Mia was twelve and alone again. She stared out of the window of the care home and watched the mist clear around the twisted oak tree on the playing field. Its ancient branches formed a sinister silhouette against the orange sky, but gave no other clue to the secret it possessed. This was the fifth day in a row that Mia had got up at sunrise, waiting for the tree to glow again. But as the wispy white clouds arrived, bringing in the first pale blue of the morning, she sighed. It was not going to happen. The bed looked cosy, and she was just thinking about crawling back in when something made her take one last look out of the window. She jumped. There it was, brilliant white shards of light exploding from the oak tree's bark. Punching the air, she grabbed her backpack and tore down the stairs, tripping over her shoelaces, but there was no time for her to stop and tie them as the tree's magic only lasted a few minutes. She ran from the house and across the playing field, avoiding Mr Oliver, who was walking his dog, Cairo. Luckily, he was looking the other way. Otherwise, he would have stopped her to comment on how unusually quiet it was and to explain how much better it was in his day when there was not so much traffic about. The fiery flames were becoming paler and she needed to get to the tree before the magic vanished altogether. As she reached it, she grabbed at the last flickering trails of light as they disappeared into the bark, but it was too late. Mia's heart sank, watching as the final glimmer of magic vanished. Ever since she had been dropped off at the care home, she had found comfort in her adventure books, longing to be part of something wild and exciting for once, although she never really believed that it would actually happen to her until the day she met Stickney Piggott. Her thoughts were broken when a solitary beam of light whizzed around the tree and hit her on the back of the head. Ouch! she cried, turning round to see what it was. The luminous corkscrew flew into a small hole in the bark above her head, and when she peered in after it, her eyes widened. Yes! she croaked with teary relief. The carved bookcase inside the hollow was still there, throbbing beneath a ghostly spotlight. Mia pushed firmly against the tree, and with a low creaking noise, the hole began to grow. Within seconds, it was wide enough for her to step inside. The bookcase was filled with old, dusty books, each with someone's name printed down the spine. 
Mia had never heard of any of them, but she picked up a large thick one with a bright gold cover. Holding it up, she read the name, Sir Morian. Inside was a portrait of a dark-skinned man dressed in battle armour, and below were the words, Sir Morian, Fierce Knight of Camelot. Other than that, the pages were blank. Mia had heard of Camelot before. It was in one of her novels about King Arthur. She remembered his magician Merlin, and a witch called Morgana, and a knight called Sir Lancelot, but she had never read about a Sir Morian. Deciding that she would ask the tree to take her to meet him, Mia flipped the pages until the magic words appeared to her. Then she read them out loud. Magic oak tree, hear this rhyme. Take me travelling back in time, where brave knights and dragons and creatures of old do battle for honour and barrels of gold. Blinding flashes filled the dark space as though the sun was bouncing off the swords of a hundred soldiers. Mia covered her eyes and then felt the ground beneath her begin to tremble as the roots of the trees spiralled up from the ground, forming a leafy staircase that led into the chamber above her. The ground calmed and the spotlight moved from the bookcase to light up the stairway. Mia dropped the heavy book and scurried up to the top. Climbing out onto the branches, she sat down and sighed happily at the sight of the crooked houses lining the narrow winding streets below. It's so peaceful up here, Stickney, she said, leaning over the edge of the tree. Two gigantic eyes looked up at her and blinked. Oh, you made me jump. Stickney Piggott stretched his branches into the air and shook his leaves awake, almost throwing Mia to the ground. He was 800 years old and the last living member of the Piggott Oak family. When he was young, this town was filled with his relatives and he missed them terribly. He enjoyed watching humans go by and wished that he could tell them all about the important people that he had met over the centuries. But they always seemed so busy. Mia was different though. He knew that as soon as she struck up a conversation with him one day and so he decided to let her discover his secret. Well, I suppose we'd better get going while it's still quiet, he said, wiggling his trunk. Hold on now. Mia just managed to catch hold of a clump of leaves as a tree turned on its engine and began to rumble. A moment later, Stickney Piggott leapt into the air, ripping his roots from the soil and leaving a big gaping hole in the ground below. They rocketed into the sky, showering unsuspecting joggers and walkers with clumps of worm-filled mud as his long trailing feet whipped from side to side, propelling them higher. Mia whooped and spread out her arms as they soared over the town and disappeared into the clouds. Get your Brolio ready, called Stickney, tapping her on the back. Brolio? What's a Brolio? she thought. A moment later they flew into a solitary white cloud and splashed through a spectacular waterfall that soaked them through. Ah! she bawled, wiping the stinging water from her eyes. Careful! Stickney let the waterfall carry them down to the bottom of the cloud, paddling with his smaller branches to keep them upright. 
Mia watched in awe as the foam at the bottom of the cascade produced fluffy white clouds which drifted off into the sky. They glided along the river until she heard a roaring noise in the distance. She felt them speeding up. What's wrong? cried Mia when she saw Stickney paddling furiously to keep them afloat. She looked down and saw that the foamy water was turning into rapids and that they were sailing dangerously towards the brink of a second waterfall. Mia screamed for Stickney to save them, but whoosh, over the edge they went and down they plummeted. The force of the flow pulled Mia from Stickney's branches. It's okay, he reassured her, scooping her from the water and tightly wrapping a branch around her. You're quite safe. Before she knew it, they were at the bottom of the waterfall and falling out of the cloud. Mia held on to Stickney for dear life as they entered this new world. She had hardly caught her breath when she noticed the unusual colour of the sky. It was crimson red with streaming grey clouds that were slowly surrounding her, making her sneeze and cough. The air smelt rancid, like rotten eggs, and Mia clamped her hand over her nose and mouth to stop herself being sick. Suddenly, a thunderous cry filled the air as a hurtling ball of flames flew across her head. Stickney tried his best to dodge it, but it was no use. Ouch! Mia heard him cry as the fire set some of his leaves alight. A colossal dragon circled them and she could think of nothing else to do but curl herself into a tight ball and pray for dear life. She opened one eye, just enough to see that it had a ridge of deadly sharp thorns lining its body, from its enormous wide head to its long, thrashing tail. It's going to eat us, she tried to scream, feeling the dragon's meaty, charcoaly breath melting her face but the creature merely sniffed her with its cavernous nostrils, snorted a stream of snotty air in her face and then flew off into the distance. Mia sat rigid for several minutes as they left the dragon realm behind and headed towards bluer skies up ahead. When eventually she felt them descending, she looked down, hoping beyond hope to see the playing field back home, but instead she saw that they were heading towards a dark and haunted-looking castle. Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 2 The Tiled Room Deep down in the dungeon, our ancestors dwell in a dark-tiled hall where in battle they fell. The castle stood high on a mound of earth, and as Stickney Piggott and Mia flew lower, they cast a tree-shaped shadow across it, first over its dramatic dark towers, and then along its thick stone walls. A few moments later, they landed on the lawn, not too far from the gatehouse, and Stickney lowered one of his branches to the floor so that Mia could climb down. She looked up at the castle that towered over them. It looked much bigger from the ground and it made her feel quite nervous. 
She looked around to see if anyone was watching, but there was no one. It was silent. In fact, it was eerily silent. Something didn't feel right. A sudden rustling noise from behind distracted her. She turned to see Stickney shaking his leaves violently as he picked off the scorched ones with the finger-like ends of his branches. He was muttering something about mountain dragons having no manners at all. Where, where are we? asked Mia. Come a lot, of course, said the tree grumpily. This is where you asked to come, wasn't it? Where there were knights and dragons. For a moment, Mia's nerves were replaced by excitement at the thought of meeting King Arthur's knights, the wizard Merlin, and maybe even Samorian. She ran around the castle in the hope of finding all of the characters from her book, but the castle seemed to have been long abandoned. The drawbridge was pulled up, and the moat was dried and overgrown with weeds. She walked up to the portcullis, but that was locked, sealing the entrance. Mia wondered what to do next. If she wanted to go in any direction other than east, she would have to go through a dense and haunted-looking forest. And even if she did go east, it would mean navigating her way through a steep, jagged mountain range. Neither way looked particularly inviting. She was making her way back to Stickney when she saw him stomping off towards the forest. Where are you going? she cried, running after him. Mia heard the tree mutter a few muffled words. Look at my leaves. It's always the same with mountain dragons, followed by something that she couldn't make out. For a big old oak tree, Stickney could certainly move quickly. Mia struggled to keep up with him. He disappeared among the trees and it was some time before she caught sight of him again. He was clearing a few thistles out of the way with his feet and then Mia saw him shuffle his bottom into the soil. With a low rumbling sound, Stickney pushed his roots into the earth and became still. Mia rushed over to him. Wake up, she shouted, knocking on his bark, but there was no response. Stickney Piggott was now just an ordinary, non-magical oak tree. There he sat in silence, leaving Mia alone and very scared. Now oak trees are very good at picking up warnings, and if Stickney hadn't been sulking, he might have noticed the shadowy figure that was standing by the castle. And he might have been able to warn Mia to run. As she turned around, the ghostly black shape startled her. There it stood, motionless in the distance, staring straight at her. Mia's heart stood still as the dark mass rose up and hovered above the ground. Then it began to spin, slowly at first, and then faster and faster, catapulting swirling balls of black mist into the air before each magically transformed into a shrieking black crow. Mia ran, but the crows were flying towards her, getting closer with every step she took. She dived into the long weeds of the waterless moat and managed to scramble into a large fox burrow seconds before the crows caught up with her. They circled the moat three times before eventually giving up 
and flying off over the mountains. With her heart still pounding, Mia turned and looked into the darkness of the burrow. She was surprised to see that it was, in fact, a long sandstone tunnel. It was too dark to see all the way down, and if Mia hadn't got a torch in her bag, she may have decided not to go down it at all. But fortunately, she had. She'd carried one for the last year, ever since her scout leader had said, you never know when you might need one. It turned out that he was right, although she guessed that he hadn't foreseen her running down a tunnel to escape a flock of malevolent crows when he'd said it. She switched it on and made her way down the tunnel. It led her underneath the castle and she eventually found herself in a room filled with food and barrels of wine. The tunnel continued on the other side of the room and Mia hoped that it would lead her to the kitchens where she would find help. She walked on for a few more minutes, but there were no kitchens. The air was becoming damper and more rancid and Mia clutched the torch tightly, suspecting that she was heading towards the castle dungeons. But when she finally reached the end of the tunnel, she found that she wasn't in the dungeons, but instead in a large hall with a tiled floor. She raised her torchlight and saw that it was filled with sandstone pillars, statues and tombs. A burial chamber, Mia said in a loud panic. The statues were the strangest that she'd ever seen. There were kings, queens, dragons, wizards, gnomes and knights, and each one had been carved to look as if they were on a battlefield. Some were running away with their arms shielding their faces, while dragons suspended in various positions of attack stood next to them. There was a knight pulling on the reins of a rearing horse with one hand, while swinging a mace above his head with the other. He had been positioned to look like he was attacking a cowering king. Mia examined each of the lifeless stone faces. She was fascinated by how real they looked. There must have been at least a hundred statues hidden away down there. She found a statue of a man in long robes and a tall pointed hat. He had a carved wavy beard that came down to his knees. Mia was certain that he was a wizard. His staff was raised above his head and his mouth was open as if he was chanting a spell. She looked to see if any names were carved on the tombs to show who they were, but there were none. She spent some time studying them, mainly to keep her thoughts focused away from what may or may not have been hiding in the darkness. Sticking out from one of the tombs and barely visible was a heavy wooden door that had a barred window halfway up. Mia shone her light through the window and saw that there was a corridor on the other side. Unfortunately, the torchlight wasn't powerful enough to reveal where it led. She tugged at the metal handle. The door was locked. Turning back to face the statues, Mia froze. As much as she tried to convince herself that it was just the shadows playing tricks on her, she could see that the statues were moving. Suddenly, the sound of a hundred ghostly whispers filled the room. 
Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 3 The Gloomy Letter A long time ago, a witch travelled this land, cursing her foes with a wave of her hand. Mia screamed, They're coming alive! She whipped the torchlight around the edges of the hall, looking for the exit tunnel. She found it, but as she was running towards it, she heard something that made her stop dead. It sounded like sobbing. A ghostly, hollow sobbing that was echoing around the room. She looked behind her, convinced that she was going to see the statues surrounding her, but they were perfectly still and in their original positions. Mia felt relieved and tried to work out where the noise was coming from. She felt a sudden overwhelming concern that someone was lost down there. Hello? She called out, making sure that she was close enough to the tunnel that she could escape if she needed to. Is... is anyone there? There was no answer. The sobbing continued. Then she heard a dripping sound, quiet at first, and then growing louder and louder until she had to put her hands over her ears. She closed her eyes, dreading what might suddenly appear in front of her if she kept them open. Mia took a few steps into the tunnel before stopping. She knew that she couldn't leave someone trapped down there. She poked her head back into the hall. There was still no response. So finding a small amount of courage, she crept forward, very, very slowly, trying to work out which direction the sound was coming from. All the time, the voices in her head were chatting to her. What if you are being tricked? They hissed. Oh, stop it, ordered Mia, shaking her head and trying to focus her mind on the investigation. What if there's a ghost waiting for you? They continued. What if the tunnel disappears, leaving you trapped down here forever? On and on they went. Mia did her best to ignore them. The sobbing noise seemed to be coming from the area where the statue of the wizard was. She walked towards it and was surprised to see that it was lit up by a ghostly light and that a great pool of water now surrounded his feet. Stepping behind him, she saw the strangest sight. It made her blink in disbelief. There, hovering in mid-air and glowing with a golden light, was an old-fashioned letter, and it was sobbing. Mia could see that something was written on it, but she didn't dare go any closer. It looked as though it was being held open by invisible hands and she was scared that they might grab her. Bobbing around above it was a small grey rain cloud which was pouring down on the letter and soaking it through. After a few moments, curiosity got the better of her and she stepped up to the parchment. The tiniest raindrops were forming a fog around it but she could just about make out the words. It was addressed to the wizard, Merlin. It read, Merlin, 
We beg for your help. The witch Morgana has taken the castle and Camelot and has turned King Arthur to stone. She now sits on the throne in a room above all those that she has cursed. Mia looked back at the statues. Cursed, she panicked, and then looked up to the ceiling of the hall, realising that there were only a few timber beams and tiles separating her from the most terrifying witch that she had ever read about. She continued reading the letter. We, the knights of King Arthur's round table, fought valiantly to stop her, but our swords and weapons were no match for her dragons and dark magic. As Mia read on, the letter began crying even louder, and the cloud began to rain heavier. Soon Mia was soaking. I am the only one of the order who escaped, but I am just one man and cannot fight her alone. You are Camelot's only hope now. I pray that this letter finds you, Merlin. I await your return. Mia read the signature. Sir Morian. The cloud turned grey and flashed with lightning, and a moment later a thunderstorm was powering through the hall. With a feeling of dread, Mia looked at the statue of the wizard once more. Merlin, she cried. Oh no! Merlin had been cursed by Morgana, and here he stood as a statue in the great hall. Mia grabbed the soggy letter from the air and ran towards the tunnel. I must find Samorian and help him, she thought. The gloomy rain cloud followed her. Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 4 Odd Job In the forest you'll find a warm, gentle breeze that whistles and dances through the magical trees. The darkness of the tunnel eventually gave way to daylight and with relief, Mia scrambled out. She stood up, brushing the dirt from her clothes and looked around. She was shocked to find that she was no longer in front of the castle where she had gone in, but instead in a dark woods. She paused, wondering whether she'd made a mistake and accidentally come down a second tunnel in the darkness. But she knew really that this was the same one. It had mysteriously changed direction and brought her out into the haunted-looking woods. She frantically looked around for Stickney Piggott, but there were too many oak trees and she couldn't find him anywhere. She wasn't even sure that this was the same part of the forest that she had left him in. Mia started to panic that she would never find him again and that she would be stuck in medieval Camelot forever. A warm breeze tingled her face and brought her out of her thoughts. She tilted her head and looked upwards towards the sky. The brilliant sunbeams filled her eyes, brightening her spirits no end. One of the long golden shards of light was piercing through the canopy of the trees, and so she stood under it and dried off her damp clothes. Then a movement next to her caught her eye. 
the gloomy cloud had followed her out of the great hall and was still hovering above the damp letter that she had in her hand. The fluffy mass was no longer raining. It was now a paler grey and a little glimmer of sunshine was poking through the top of it. Mia smiled. She laid Samorian's letter on the ground to dry and the cloud sat with it like a faithful companion. It seemed a little sad. Don't worry, she said. I'll help you find Samorian. The cloud began to look more hopeful and darted back and forth excitedly. As soon as she and the letter were dry, Mia picked a random direction and then set off through the forest to find help. It was a difficult trek. There was no cleared path for her to follow and she was forced to push through sharp brambles and climb over fallen trees. Eventually she came across a clearing that sloped down towards a river and so she stopped to bathe her scratched arms and to fill her water bottle. She watched as the fast-flowing water carried fallen leaves downstream and deposited them on the riverbank in front of her. A jagged red one caught her eye. The light was bouncing off it and it was glistening. She reached over and fished it out of the water. It looked as though someone had painted it with red glittery paint. The thought that there could have been other children nearby filled Mia with hope. Screwing the top back on her water bottle, she started to run upstream. Come on, she shouted, looking back at the cloud, which was playing happily in the river and soaking up the spray of the water. We've got to go. It flew over to join Mia, and as they walked, she would occasionally glance back over her shoulder and smile at the sight of the cloud becoming whiter and fluffier as it bobbed along. After about half an hour, she noticed that the cloud was starting to look pink. In fact, the entire light in the forest was changing. It was becoming redder. When she looked up, she saw that the leaves on the trees were no longer vibrant oranges and yellows. They were now glittery golds and reds, just like the leaf that she'd found in the river. They didn't look natural at all. Suddenly, something dropped from the sky and landed by her feet with a splut. She looked down and saw a large blob of red sparkling paint. Immediately, a second blob joined it. Above her, stretching up into the canopy of the tree, was a strange-looking man on a ladder. He was wearing a dark red tunic that was short enough to reveal his knobbly knees and two scrawny legs. He had on a pair of long brown socks. One of them had rolled down around his ankle and on his feet were two pointed cloth shoes. He had red glittery paint pouring down his arm and dripping from his elbow. Is he painting the leaves? She whispered to the cloud. The cloud floated up to the top of the tree and then floated back down again. It nodded. That is so weird, she said. Is he crazy? Another splodge of paint fell from above and Mia quickly stepped back to dodge it. Careful, she shouted up. This made the man jump and as he did so, he bashed his head on one of the branches, letting out a cry of pain. Despite this mishap, the man was actually pleased to hear another human voice. Oh, good day, he shouted down, rubbing his head. What a pleasant surprise. I don't get to see many people anymore. 
he said, climbing down the ladder. Everyone that I know has been turned to st He suddenly paused halfway down, staring at Mia's clothes. Goodness, who might you be? He asked with a puzzled look on his face. Hello, um, I'm Mia, she replied, wondering how to try and explain to a medieval person that she had travelled through time. The man then noticed the letter in Mia's hand and the cloud that was floating above it. He shuddered. How did you find that? Did, did the witch send you? I found it in a room of statues. It belongs to Samorian, one of King Arthur's knights. Do you know him? Morian? The man's face brightened at the mention of the knight's name. Yes, I know him well, he said, tossing his paintbrush into a pot that was dangling from a branch and jumping the last few rungs to the ground. But you won't find him around here. He fled during the Battle of the Interworlds. He looked behind him to check that no one was listening and then lowered his voice. After the witch defeated the knights and started turning her enemies into statues, Morian ran away and never came back. And who are you? asked Mia nervously. The man bowed. Oh, excuse me, miss. My name's Job, but most people call me Odd Job because there's nothing I can't turn my hand to. At least, I think that's why they call me that, he added thoughtfully. Mia giggled. Then Odd Job stood up straight and looked very proud. I'm the castle caretaker. Well, I was, before the battle, he said sadly, wiping the paint from his fingers with a cloth. The castle used to be so beautiful inside, he said. The walls were painted golds and reds and the windows were draped with silk fabrics. The furniture was made from the finest wood and decorated with blue and gold cloth. I used to see to all of that, he said proudly. And there wasn't a day went by when the great hall wasn't filled with people and laughter. But when the witch came, I was forced to abandon my duties and wait on her like a slave. Can you tell me about the Battle of the Interworlds? asked Mia. Odd Job sat down on a tree stump and beckoned her to come closer. The tale goes that 200 years ago, Morgana travelled to another realm, to a place called the Wastelands, and tried to take the throne from the Queen. But the Queen was more powerful than Morgana, and she defeated her, banishing her to a world that lies beyond the Great Lake. And there she lived, under an enchantment that meant that she could no longer see anything in the outside world. He shuffled uncomfortably as he spoke, but then suddenly, remembering his manners, he grabbed his cloak and laid it on the ground in front of him, gesturing for Mia to sit down. Then he continued... Three years ago, the wizard Merlin was travelling across the Great Lake and he discovered Morgana's home. She bewitched him and he fell in love with her. Merlin broke the enchantment and they sailed back to Camelot on a great black ship. 
the witch was introduced to everyone at court, including King Arthur himself, but no one knew her or suspected that she was biding her time, planning to take the throne for herself. But over time, Morgana realised that Merlin's magic was more powerful than hers and that he could possibly stop her. So she betrayed him and turned him to stone. With Merlin out of the way, there was no match for her magic and she waged war against King Arthur and the whole of Camelot. I watched everyone that I knew, everyone in my world, knights, dragons and good witches and wizards, defeated and turned to stone. Odd Job lowered his head. Mia could see the sadness wash over him. A splash of cold water hit her neck and made her jump. She looked over and saw that her cloud companion had started to rain again. She stood up and placed the letter under another tree so that the cloud would move away from her. So how did you end up out in the woods? she asked. Well, some months ago she caught me in the tiled hall under the castle where she keeps the people that she's turned into statues. Mia nodded. Where I found Samorian's letter. Yes, he said. The whole of the royal household is down there. Morgana had forbidden me to go down there, but I used to go down anyway. I miss them, you see. I know that they can hear me, beneath the spell. I wanted to let them know that I was still there for them, but Morgana caught me and threw me out of the castle. She didn't curse me, so she must have been in a good mood that day, but I have lived out here in the forest ever since. Mia could see that the memories haunted Odd Job. She reached out and put her hand on his arm, and he looked back at her. You see, he said slowly, if I can't keep the inside of the castle looking beautiful anymore, then I'll have to keep the outside looking smart for them instead. Otherwise, what else will I do with my time? They shared a silent moment where they both realised the madness of what he was doing. Anyway, he said, brushing himself down and forcing himself to sound more cheerful. I can't sit around here talking all day. Oddjob got to his feet and began to climb up the ladder. When he was halfway up, he turned to wave goodbye to Mia and then suddenly stopped and pointed into the trees behind her. Look, he shouted. Watch out! Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 5 Sir Morian In Camelot there are magical things some with long horns and others with wings Mia turned around and saw a bright ghostly light moving through the trees It's a magical white stag called out Oddjob he travels through this world and the next. He sees things that we cannot. The stag came into view and then stopped to look at Mia. 
It glowed white against the backdrop of the dark, ancient trees. And its huge antlers seemed to sparkle as though they were made of a hundred bright stars. As she stared at them, Mia began to drift into a hypnotic state. She reached out her hand towards the stag, but it stepped back and started to run away. She heard Job's voice whisper in her ears, He wants you to follow him. Without thinking about it, Mia began to chase the stag, running for miles in a dreamlike state. She didn't feel the tiredness that she should have felt as she jumped over fallen trees and skipped through shallow, rocky streams. She was getting used to the fact that nothing was normal in Camelot and she enjoyed watching the majestic ghost charge through the forest, kicking up leaves and twigs as it went, which then magically transformed into animal shapes that darted around her feet. She felt excited rather than nervous for the first time. At last, the stag stopped in a clearing. It gave Mia one last glance and then disappeared into the forest. She felt the hypnotic state wear off and she suddenly felt exhausted and dropped to the floor. When she had caught her breath, she went to take some water out of her bag and realised that the gloomy cloud was missing. A moment later, it came zigzagging through the trees and crash landed on her bag. It lay there panting until Mia poured some water over it. They were in an apple orchard. The sun was illuminating the red and green fruit and as she searched for one that was low enough to pick, she noticed someone sitting under a nearby tree. It was a young man. He was wearing a long brown cloak which had a hood that was crumpled around his shoulders. His knees were bent and his elbows rested on them and his hands propped up his chin. Hovering above him was another solitary dark rain cloud that was soaking him through. Mia recognised him immediately. Samorian! she shouted, running over. She made the knight jump. He looked up. The expression on his face was half of surprise and half of relief to see her approaching. Mia thought that for one of King Arthur's knights, he looked a very sorry sight, sitting in a muddy puddle as raindrops dripped from his hair and face. Hello, he said. Do I know you? No, replied Mia, but I have something that belongs to you. She pointed to the rain cloud hovering over her bag. My letter, he exclaimed excitedly, jumping to his feet. Mia threw open her bag and took out the letter. She handed it to the knight. The moment the letter touched Morian's hands, the two gloomy clouds joined together and merged into one. Then, evaporating into a stream of white silky wisps, they drifted up towards the sky and vanished from sight. Mia held up her hand to say goodbye. She felt sad to have lost her friend. Is Merlin with you? asked Morian, breaking her from her thoughts. He looked much more cheerful. He rolled up the letter and put it on the ground. Then he took off his cloak to wring out the water. Merlin has been cursed, said Mia. 
knowing that the bad news would remove the smile from his face. He can't help you. Maureen stopped what he was doing and sat back down, heavy-hearted. I suspected as much, he said, picking the letter back up. I sent this by enchantment some years ago. The rain cloud has been my companion ever since. It should have disappeared once it was delivered to Merlin, but it never left me, meaning that the letter never reached him. Mir explained that the letter had found Merlin, but that the wizard had already been turned into a statue before he could read it. I found them both in a hall under the castle, she added. This statement interested Morian, and he stood up and rubbed his chin. How did you get inside the tiled hall? he questioned. Morgana sealed it with a spell so that no one can get inside. Mir explained that there was an entrance to a tunnel in the castle moat, which took her there. Morian looked puzzled. I know Morgana, he said. She would never open up that portal to anyone, unless... He hesitated and looked at Mir closely, unless somebody who came across it was unaffected by her magic. Then, for the first time, the knight noticed that she was dressed very strangely. Where are you from? he asked. I've... I've come from a faraway place, she said nervously. Morian looked intrigued. Continue, he said. I've... Come here from the future, she spat out quickly, squeezing her eyes shut and waiting for the reaction. There was silence. She opened one eye and saw Morian frowning at her suspiciously. I know that sounds unbelievable, but I did, she said. Morian eventually spoke. During my travels, I have witnessed many strange things places where the veil between two worlds is thin and where creatures travel between this world and the next with great ease. Your story is not so unbelievable, my lady. He smiled at her reassuringly and Mia felt very relieved that he didn't think that she was mad or a witch. Can't you see? He laughed. You weren't affected by Morgana's spells because you're not from this world. You may be the one who can finally break her curse and set Camelot free. This suggestion filled Mia with excitement and dread at the same time. So, Lady Mia, he continued, picking two apples from a tree and throwing one to her. Are you prepared to come on a quest with me to fight the witch? Part of her wondered whether she regretted picking up Samorian's book inside Stickney Piggott's trunk. A crack of thunder rang out above them and dark clouds started moving in. It looks like rain, said Mia. Morian shook his head and said, That isn't the weather. Morgana's magic is shifting. She's detected your presence. She will be looking for you. Mia felt terrified. She had no wish to meet the most powerful witch that she'd ever read about. Morian saw the doubts on her face and consoled her. Don't underestimate your own power, Mia, he said. 
You've traveled a thousand years through time and have walked unharmed through one of Morgana's spells. I believe that your part in this story is still yet to be played out. She thought about it for a few moments and accepting that there was no other way home, she reluctantly agreed. They stopped by Morian's house to pick up some food and supplies. He handed Mia a thick cloak and a sword. We will need weapons that are far more stout than these, he said, testing his own sword against the stone fireplace. We will find them in the land of the dragons. You must prepare yourself. It will be a long and dangerous journey. Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 6 The Perilous Journey When there's no turning back, you must forge on ahead. But if you take the wrong turn, you may end up dead. For half a day, Mia and Morian trudged through the enchanted forest, cutting a pathway through the branches and brambles with their swords as they went. It was a wild and mysterious landscape, but every now and again they came across signs that there was once human life. They passed abandoned watermills, their once industrious wooden paddles now idle, broken and rotting away. Dark weed oozed along the riverbed, forming thick fingers that linked together, pushing back the flow of the water. These rivers, Morian explained, were once teeming with salmon and trout, which fed the court and the villages for miles around. That was before the witch arrived. Staring into the water, Mia could see black misty shadows swirling beneath the surface. She watched them twist and turn in a macabre dance that made her feel slightly sleepy. Until Morian bent down and rippled the water, breaking the spell. You don't want to get too close, he said. That's the toxic waste of one of Morgana's spells. Once she has caught her spell in a flask, he continued, she pours what's left in the cauldron out of the window, where it soaks into the earth and crawls towards the river, killing everything in its path. Mia stepped back, shaking the dazed feeling from her head. He began walking away, shouting over his shoulder, that spell will have ruined someone's day. Another hour went by and they found themselves in the deepest part of the forest where the trees were gigantic and gnarled. Their branches intertwined and formed a tunnel so dark that even the smallest ray of sunlight couldn't pierce it. Mia took out her torch and they walked on cautiously. There was no sound at all inside the tunnel. No animals, no breeze and no snapping twigs. All that they could hear was their own breathing and the sound of their blood rushing through their ears. It was very eerie. Mia counted 131 breaths before they finally stepped out of the darkness. From then on, the time passed quickly 
as they quizzed each other about what their lives were like. Maureen was especially interested to hear how the world was going to change over the next thousand years and about the houses and tools and carriages that they had. You can travel 70 miles in one hour, he cried, not believing what he was hearing. That's faster than a dragon. Mia laughed. Teaching one of King Arthur's knights all of these things and seeing how amazed he was made her feel very intelligent. She had never felt particularly bright at school and she often struggled to understand what the teacher was saying. But the more she talked to Morian, the more she decided that intelligence was a made-up thing and it just meant that you knew more about a particular thing than the person you're talking to. She spent the next moment wondering whether a sparrow might be thought of as more intelligent than a doctor, if you wanted an expert on winter survival. What magic you have in your world, said Morian, breaking her thoughts. It would take me two days to travel that far on my horse. Mia had never thought of all the inventions in the world as magic before, but considering that science was all about potions, strange creatures and unseen forces making things happen, she thought that he was probably right. Where is your horse? She eventually said, bringing her thoughts back to the conversation. Morian sat down on a fallen tree trunk, picked up a stone and aimed it at a small mossy knoll in the distance. The stone sent a chunk of moss flying into the air as it hit and he clenched his fist victoriously. Then he picked up a small stick and began stabbing the ground gently with the end of it. Charger is somewhere in the castle grounds, he sighed. During the battle of the Interworlds, we knights were lined up with the engineers, attacking the castle, ready to kill Morgana. But she went up to the roof and sent down a petrifying curse. Before it hit us, Charger ran towards the forest and threw me to the ground, and a second later the curse hit him and the rest of our army. My horse sacrificed his life to save mine. Mia could hear how much Morian missed his horse and she was now starting to warm to the idea of meeting Morgana and helping him to remove her from Camelot. It was now early afternoon and they had been on their feet for hours. Mia's legs were beginning to ache. How far is it to the land of the dragons? She said, trying not to sound cranky. It's in another realm, far away from here. But don't worry, we'll be taking a shortcut. We just have to find the mountain witch. Mia frowned. A mountain witch? I'm already dreading meeting Morgana. I certainly don't need two witches in my life. Morian laughed out loud. This one's a nice witch. She's a little different, but she's quite harmless. And she will help us get to the dragon realm. A sudden change in the weather meant that they had reached the edge of the forest and had entered the water realm. They both pulled up the hoods of their cloaks to shield them from the cold downpouring of rain. That's where we're going, said Morian, pointing upwards. Mia looked ahead and saw the bent peaks of the mystical mountain range looming over them. They were shaped like a cluster of witches' hats, only greyer and more crumpled. Her eyes fixed on the bright blue waterfalls that cascaded down them, spitting out dramatic blue sparks whenever they came into contact with a jutting rock. 
That's where Molly Merle lives, the witch that we're going to see. Mia looked towards the gap in the rocks where Morian was pointing and saw a jet of blue sparkling water shoot into the air. Then came another, and another. At least five fountains of this mystical water jetted out of the mountains and then evaporated. They are Molly Merle's magical wells, explained Morian. They are portals to wherever you want to go. You will soon see. Come, let's keep going. We have a long climb ahead of us. A storm was now upon them. They pulled their hoods tightly around their heads and ran across the meadows towards the mountain. Their route onto the mountain path was blocked by a shallow, pebbly river and there was no obvious way around it. There had once been a rope bridge to cross it, but one side of it had worn away and was now lying collapsed in the water. We must walk through it, said Morian. It's low enough at the moment. Although Mia was a little scared, she was soaked through from the rain already and so reasoned that wading through the knee-high water could not have made her any wetter. So she took off her shoes and socks, put them in her bag and followed Morian across. The pebbles felt more like rocks and were difficult to walk across. Her feet kept slipping and getting caught between them and every other step she had to change direction. As they got to the middle of the river, the water became a lot deeper and was nearly up to their waist. The flow intensified and started to push her sideways. She could barely stand up in it now, let alone walk. She toppled over with a splash and in a panic shouted out to Morian, but he was too far away to grab her. She caught hold of her glasses just in time to stop them being washed away as she was dragged under the water. Mia tried to scramble to her feet, but it was no use. The wind was now howling around the mountain and swishing the water into a raging torrent. Underneath, Mia swirled and swirled before she finally saw that she was being swept down the river. Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 7, The Mountain Witch in the mystical mountains, there are mystical spells, and the sparkling blue puddles are magical wells. The current was fierce, and as much as Mia tried to fight it, there was nothing that she could do to stop herself being pulled along with it. The water repeatedly rolled over her head and span her around until she didn't know which way she was facing. She started to sink. Too exhausted to fight it, she closed her eyes as the water filled her mouth. Then she felt a nudge. Something moved beneath her and started to lift her upwards. Within moments, her head was above the water again and she felt herself being pulled towards the shore. She was deposited on the bank beneath the mountain. She vomited up the slimy, stinky water that she had swallowed and looked up. There, lying next to her and looking just as near to death, was Morian. Thank you, she said once she had caught her breath. Don't thank me, he gasped, nodding towards the river. 
Thank our friend. Mia turned to see a water dragon rolling and surfing in the swell. It studied them with its dark grey eyes while it played, and then, with an enormous splash of its long tail, it sank beneath the waves and swam away. The river instantly became shallow and calm again. I've never known this river to be that turbulent, said Morian. This is witchcraft. Someone doesn't want us here. A screeching noise from above made them look towards the sky. Circling them was a large group of crows. The smoky threads that poured from their wings left Mia in no doubt that they were the same ones that had chased her at the castle. She screamed. That's Morgana, the knight panicked. Let's get out of here. They both clambered to their feet and ran as quickly as they could to the foot of the mystical mountains. They watched the witch fly off. Well, she obviously knows I'm here now, said Mia, shaking. They rested for a while and ate some food before beginning the long ascent. The first part of the track was fairly flat and easy, with just a few small rocks to avoid. But then it became steeper and narrower, and the surface became a blanket of loose stones that sent them sliding dangerously near to the edge of the sheer drop with every step. At one point, Mia lost her grip entirely, and it was only holding onto the branch of a tree that was sticking out from the rock that saved her from plummeting over the edge. Morian was more used to the climb, and Mia was amazed to see him skipping up the path like a gazelle. The track eventually came to an end, leaving them two options, back down the way they came, or up a steep cliff. What now? asked Mia, clutching a cluster of wallflowers for dear life and trying not to look down. A feeling of dread came over her when she saw Morian scanning the rock face. We climb, of course, he said, confirming her fears. But wait here until I say so. He found his first foothold and began the ascent. It felt like a lifetime before she heard him call down from the top. Here, pull this tightly under your arms and start climbing, she heard him yell, a second before a heavy rope with a looped end came tumbling down towards her. Mia stepped into the hoop, pulled it up around her chest and took a moment to compose herself. Ready, she eventually shouted up apprehensively. She felt the rope being pulled at the other end and she began to climb. Don't look down, don't look down, she kept saying to herself. If she had, she would have seen the deep gorge that disappeared into the ground directly below her and she might have frozen with fear. When she got to the top of the cliff, she laughed with nervous relief. Morian patted her on the back. Good job, he said, folding the rope back up. I'll make a warrior of you yet. Mia felt a lot less nervous after that and began to climb with the same confidence as Morian. Halfway up, she noticed that the rocks were becoming blue. They were sparkling with what looked like hundreds of tiny sapphires. It was the most beautiful sight that she'd ever seen. 
The higher they went, the more intense the colour was. She could hear a rumbling sound in the distance. As they went on, the rumbling got louder and louder, and Mia took a sharp intake of breath when they turned a corner and she saw that the rumbling was coming from a series of spectacular waterfalls and fountains, each bursting into an impressive display of watery fireworks. Here, said Morian, wagging his finger breathlessly towards a nook in the rock. We have to go through here. Mia looked inside and saw that there was a hole at the back of it. It was very small and would have been easily missed by anybody casually passing. They both squeezed through and Mia was amazed to see that on the other side was a forest. It was as though they had been magically transported back to the ground. This was another strange land where the leaves on the trees were radiant blues and whites and they flickered like candle flames. It reminded Mia of the calm, wintry light that she used to see on the playing field when she would go out walking with her mum. But that was a long time ago, and the thought made her feel sad. She noticed that on the ground below some of the trees were shallow puddles of water, as bright blue and sparkly as the waterfalls, and above each of these pools was a large bell hanging from a chain. These pools are magic wells, portals to other parts of Camelot, said Morian. When you want to travel somewhere, you step into one and tell it where you want to go. Then you ring the bell and you'll be transported there. Mia tested it out by putting her foot in the puddle. It only just covered her toes. Will it take me home? she asked. Then she reached out to touch the bell, but Morian blocked her hand. They do not possess the power of time travel, he said. If you try, it will confuse the well, and you could end up somewhere even more dangerous. Even travelling through this realm requires great caution. Morian must have noticed the look of sadness on Mia's face, as he immediately lightened the mood by showing her a pair of long pointed cloth shoes that were lying on a tree stump next to the pool. He must have slipped and gone in face first. He laughed. Look, the force of the water swirl pulled his shoes off. I hate to think where he ended up, poor man. Hopefully somewhere nice. They both howled with laughter, a welcome relief after their troublesome day. Will these portals take us to the land of the dragons? asked Mia. No, only one well has the power to transport humans to another realm. The Hydra Well the most powerful portal in the kingdom. They walked through the forest as they chatted. Mia looked around her in awe as they passed all the sparkling portals. For thousands of years, the Hydra Wells Bell has opened the gateway between Camelot and the Dragon Realm, Morian continued. When it rings out, its musical notes vibrate through the water, creating a swirl of magical blue foam that takes people where they ask it to go. One false word and you could end up in another world with no way back. The mountain witch Molly Merle is the only one who knows how to use it. We must find her and ask her to help us on our way. A little further down the track, the sound of dull clanging interrupted their conversation. They went to see what it was. Through the trees, 
they could see an old woman, dressed in a scruffy purple dress. Its hem and anything below it was hidden by the deep pool of mud that she was standing in. She had a cone-shaped black hat that was bent at the end. It was pushed to one side as she scratched her head and appeared to talk to something in her hand. Molly Merle, called out Maureen, making the woman jump. She looked up. Well, if it isn't Samorian, she exclaimed. This is a welcome surprise. Her feet squelched as she pulled them from the mud and strode over to greet her old friend. I haven't seen you for over a year, she beamed, hugging the knight. What brings you this way again? Then she spotted Mia. And who's this? She inquired, releasing Morian and walking towards Mia with her arm outstretched. Mia accepted the witch's handshake and she was in the middle of introducing herself when a strong breeze blew through the air. Mia suddenly felt Molly gripping her hand so tightly that it was beginning to hurt. She looked at the witch's face and saw with panic that her eyes had become white. She tried to pull her hand away, but Molly would not let go. Her voice changed. You are from a land that is much further away than my portals can reach. When you broke through the barriers of time, you brought with you an energy that has the power to destroy this world. Morgana has felt a tear through her magic, and she is looking for the one whose energy can destroy her. Molly suddenly let go of Mia and pulled back her hand, and the air became still once more. The witch looked visibly shaken. You must proceed with caution, Mia heard her whisper to Morian. Morgana is nearby. We need your help to get to the Dragon Realm so that we can get hold of some armour and the blaze sword. Molly took Morian's hand. Visiting the Dragon Realm is one thing, but you're going to risk your lives further by visiting Tarask, she cautioned. Mia has the power to break the spell over Camelot, he explained. What other choice do we have? Then his attention turned to the muddy, waterless puddle at her feet. Where is the Hydra well? he asked. Molly suddenly remembered the object in her hand and showed them the cracked piece of metal, which was once the magical Hydra bell. The bell is broken, she sighed with frustration. I can't fix it. Mia asked whether she could look at the bell and then took it from Molly. As she examined it, she could hear Molly complaining. For thousands of years, the Merle family have guarded the mystical mountain wells. And today, for the first time, and under my watch, we have failed. What happened? asked Mia. Molly began to recount the events of earlier that day. It was around sunrise. I'd just got back from my rounds, topping up the mountain wells with water, and I saw a shadowy figure standing by the hydra well. Who was it? asked Morian. I don't know, said Molly. But it was an evil-looking thing, and I didn't like it one bit. Mia looked around, feeling jittery. I saw it fly over me as I was returning. 
It looked like a flock of birds. At first I thought that it was the Merle family blackbirds coming to visit me. But when I got here, I saw that it was turning into something more sinister. And I'm ashamed to say that I stood there in fright, leaving the hydra well unprotected. Molly's voice was becoming more and more shaky. I saw it hit the hydra bell with an axe, and it fell to the floor, and the well water disappeared. Mia shifted uncomfortably and placed the bell on the floor. I suppose that if there's no bell to summon the magical water, the hydra well no longer works, she said, unsure of whether she wanted to be right or wrong. Yes, answered Morian, meaning that we can no longer get to the dragon realm. Mia looked at the two disheartened faces next to her, and then she remembered something else that she had in her bag. It was another useful thing that she'd learnt how to use at Scouts. She opened it up and took out a large magnifying glass. Morian and Molly were fascinated by the unusual object and both shuffled closer to see. She picked up the broken bell and placed it in the middle of the muddy hydra well, with its cracked side facing upwards. She waited for a ray of sunshine to break through the clouds and as soon as it did, she used the lens of the magnifying glass to reflect the sunbeam onto the bell's cracked surface. Under Mia's instruction, they all took it in turns to hold the lens in position, and after an hour, the metal began to heat up and soften. It's melting, cried Mia, not quite believing her luck. Clever girl, shouted Molly with excitement. Soon the metal was so hot that when Morian touched it with a stick, it began to move. Now we need to move the melted metal over the crack to seal it, said Mia. Here, let me take over, said Molly, rolling up her sleeves. Moving liquid is my area of expertise. Then she took out her wand and conjured up a spell, which made the molten metal move like water across the bell. In no time at all, the crack was sealed and the bell was back in its original shape. They collected some magical blue water from a nearby well to cool down the metal and to top up its magic. It will be even more powerful now, laughed Molly as she scampered off to return the bell to the hydra well. Once it was back in place, she said, Now stand back! And she pulled on the bell's chain. With a loud clang, the bell vibrated and blue sparkling water gushed up from the ground, swirling around in the air like a tornado before eventually settling into a still blue pool. The Hydra Well is back, declared Molly, throwing her arms into the air with happiness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, she said, hugging Mia. A sudden darkness passed over the group cutting short their celebration. They looked up to see a blanket of black birds flying above the forest. It's back, said Molly in alarm, signalling for Mia and Morian to jump into the portal. Quickly, you must be on your way before it sees you. They both jumped into the blue water and Molly began ringing the bell frantically. Instantly the water began to churn. To the realm of the dragons! she commanded, and the water rose higher before turning into a speeding whirlpool. Mia heard Molly ringing the bell harder and louder, and she took a sharp intake of breath before closing her eyes 
wondering what on earth was to come next. She felt herself being pulled under the water. I can't believe this is happening to me again, she thought. But unlike her experience in the river at the bottom of the mystical mountains, Mia wasn't being thrashed about. Instead, she felt a calmness, as though she was bobbing around under the sea. She slowly opened her eyes and was shocked and bewildered to find that they were being pulled through a weird underground galaxy, an invisible sea that was filled with glimmering stars and bright, vibrant mountain peaks. The sound of Molly's bell was still ringing in her ears, but it was becoming distorted and sounding more like a choir of fairies or angels singing now. She pulled on Morian's arm to alert him to a giant octopus that was swimming past them. A moment later, they both felt a nudge from above. They looked up and saw the dark grey eyes of a water dragon staring at them. It was the one that had saved them from the river. It stopped and played with them for a while, somersaulting and looping in the air around them. Without warning came a deafening clang, and Mia felt her feet hit a hard surface as they left the portal and found themselves looking down into the land of the dragons. Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 8 The Land of the Dragons They knocked on the door of the old dragon's lair. They listened, then shook when a voice roared, Who's there? Mia stared into the valley to make sure that she was actually seeing what she thought she was seeing. There they were. Hundreds of scaly, feathery and toothy creatures of all shapes, sizes and attitudes. A warm current of air drifted towards them and brought with it a foul stench, a mixture of wet, sweaty socks and rotting meat. Oh, she retched, holding her nose with one hand and placing the palm of the other over her mouth. She watched the dragons as they busied themselves, wandering around among the mud caves and what looked like farm buildings. Some were gathered in small groups, their heads together as though there were some secret transactions going on. On this side of the village, a group of young dragons chased each other some way up the valley bank, leaving the smallest crying as it struggled to keep up. There were some structures that looked like small workshops, too small for all but the tiniest of dragons to enter, but the broken puffs of black smoke rising from the chimney suggested that there was some sort of industry going on inside. The village was cradled within the horseshoe shape of the Hydra Mountains, and between the village and the south rock face, forest covered the ground. And to the west of that, there were fields on which dragons appeared to be planting saplings. They were wearing hats with large brims to keep the sun from catching their faces. They have a village, Mia eventually said. There was no reply. She looked at Morian. He was looking at her and had a crumpled brow as if to say, yes, and? You can understand why they don't want humans to find this place, he said. Her eyes kept being drawn towards the dragons planting trees. 
It was such a strange thing for Mia to get her head around that they were digging holes with their hands and gently watering the trees with small buckets. A large wooden wagon rolled in, pulled by a rather flabby but strong-looking one who lumbered forward. He came to a halt and all the tree-planting dragons gathered around to help unload the saplings from the open back. They're green forest dragons, Morian explained. Their ancestors planted the ancient forests that grow here, and these dragons continue their work. They also fight fiercely to protect them from destruction. That's why Molly doesn't allow many humans to travel to this. A sudden great blast of wind cut short his sentence and almost blew them off their feet. A dragon flew over their heads and towards the village, carrying a suit of armour in its feet. It hovered at the mouth of a gigantic cave, and then, with a tremendous clatter, it dropped it in a heap before flying off to join the farmers. The cave was a curious sight. It was much larger than all the others and at the furthest distance away. Mia could just about see that a metre inside the hollow was a large wooden door. She waited to see whether anyone came out. No one did. She looked over at Morian, about to ask him what the plan was, but stopped when she saw him sitting on the grass, his eyes firmly fixed on the valley below. Down there, he said, pointing to the large cave. That is where our quest takes us. He rose to his feet. I hope that you're feeling brave, he laughed as he began walking towards a nearby bank of trees on their right. Why? What's... In there, she asked nervously, following him down the bank. Tarask, he shouted. One of the most foul-tempered beasts that I know. Mia stood still and flashed her eyes between Morian and the cave. She felt the sudden urge to shout after him that she was not going to go any further. But instead, she found her legs running to catch up with him. Oh, and he hates humans, Mia heard him mutter. Then why are we going? she complained. Morian stopped to let Mia catch up. Because he is the only one who has the blaze armour and weapons. We must be well armed before we even attempt to talk to him. They made their way down into the valley and towards the old blacksmith's forge. Morian opened the door to the workshop and a wall of smoke hit them. Good day to you, Gobar, called Morian as they walked through the low door. A loud noise like the sound of thin metal being dragged along stone told them that the blacksmith was in. The room did not have any windows and it was dark apart from a glowing furnace at the far side. I'll be with you in a moment, came the reply. He sounded quite irritable as though this was not the first time he'd been interrupted that day. They walked over to where the orange flames illuminated a section of the wall and against the light they saw the shadow of a figure at work. Mia squinted to get a better look at the man. He was very short, probably only as high as her waist, and his overalls were shabby and covered in soot. He pulled a long piece of red-hot metal three times his height from the flames and carried it over to an anvil. Mia stood mesmerised as the man hammered the hot metal into a sword shape. He was one of the gnome folk, the master swordsmiths and armourers of Camelot for 10,000 years. 
Morian was always bemused by how they were able to spend hours crafting such sophisticated weapons. It took a great deal of skill and patience, which the gnome folk were not well known for, at least not when it came to dealing with living creatures. After a few minutes, Gobar held up the sword and inspected it. When he was satisfied that it was perfect, he put it down and looked up at his visitors. Humans, he declared with a gruff voice. Then he picked up a funny-looking glass contraption and stared at Morian through it. The last knight that came here without armour was charcoaled by a battle dragon, he grinned. What brings you here? Then he proceeded to shuffle towards them, pulling on their clothes and sniffing them. Do you mind? snapped Mia, snatching the bottom of her t-shirt from his hands. The gnome looked up at her with small pokey eyes. I didn't mean to offend you, my lady, he sneered, dropping into an exaggerated bow. We don't get many humans in this land, especially ones dressed like you. I was making sure that you weren't one of the witch kind. Witch kind, said Mia, wiping away some soot from her jeans. Do I look like a witch? The gnome raised his eyebrows sarcastically. Morian turned his head away from them and tried not to laugh. Gobar gave a toothy grin, but otherwise remained silent. Well, continued Mia, it's not very polite to pull at someone's clothes and, ah, uh, sniff them. That's gross. Besides, how can you tell by sniffing someone that they're a witch? Because witches smell of incense, of course, he answered, still looking at them suspiciously. They use its smell to carry their evil magic spells to the souls of the weak. He wagged his fingers in Morian's direction, like him. Morian looked embarrassed by the insult and trick them into doing things that they wouldn't usually do if they were of sound mind, like walk into the land of the dragons unarmed. We're here because we desperately need the help of Tarask, Morian replied. Gobar looked stunned. You mean to steal his armour, he said, before dismissively waving them away. To borrow it, protested Morian. It's the only thing that gives us a chance of defeating Morgana. What care I of the human world, said Gobar. Do you think that she will always be content with the throne at Camelot? It will not be long before she gets bored and comes looking for other worlds to wage war against. The gnome's face twitched at these words, but he continued with his work. And what do you want from me? he muttered. Morian lowered his tone to try and win the gnome over. Lend us the swords and shields that we need to protect us when we approach Tarask, he begged. You fools! screamed Gobar. Do you think that the best way to approach a dragon you want help from is to bear swords? What primitive creatures you humans are! Tarask will set you alight and I will lose some fine weapons in the process, he snapped, turning his back on them and then examining the sword that he had just made once more. Morian grew angry at these words. If the dragon kills us before we have chance to explain, what good would that do for any of our kingdoms, he argued. Morgana may be satisfied for now with the lands that she has conquered, but it won't be long before her need for excitement brings her here. Some of the dragons might survive her magic, 
But what about the gnomes? Are your kind strong enough to fight her? The gnomes shifted uncomfortably before responding in a more gentle tone. There isn't a sword or armour that can protect you from Tarask. His instinct for vengeance against humans is too strong. When he was a child, he saw them destroy his family and friends for sport and so-called honour. The dragon's habitats were destroyed by the greed of mankind and now he protects the remaining few hundred dragons with a force that you should pray that you never have to witness. But there are dragons imprisoned in Morgana's dungeons too, said Mia. They once fought alongside the humans to protect this land, but now they're statues in her underground trophy room. Why wouldn't Tarask want to set them free? The gnome turned and looked at Mia with shock. Because nobody in this realm knew about them. Tarask certainly doesn't. Yet. Mia and Morian hid behind a large tree and waited for the gnome to come out of Tarask's lair. Without warning, a thunderous roar came from within and a fireball sent the cave door catapulting through the air. Goba came flying out with it, his hair and clothes scorched. Get down! He shouted to anyone in earshot. Dragons, gnomes and humans threw themselves to the floor as seconds later a monstrous creature smashed through the rock and took to the sky. It bellowed loudly, causing a shower of fire to rain down. They looked up and saw Tarask's colossal brown wings and tail vanishing over the mystical mountaintops. Well, he didn't take that news well, said the gnome, shaking the soot off his head. But now he's gone, I can show you where he keeps his armour. He led Mia and Morian by candlelight into Tarask's lair. They winced as they walked through the piles of human skeletons that were lying on the floor. Some were still wearing melted armour and clenching their broken swords in their hands. They continued on through a network of dark caverns until they came to a closed metal gate. They were surprised to see Gobar produce a key from his pocket and turn the lock. Stay close, he said, leading them deep down into the dungeons below the lair. The air underground was thicker and more exhausting to walk through, as if somebody had placed a heavy damp cloak on their back. You can feel the souls who dwell down here, can't you? He said. Gobar, stop scaring the girl, scolded Morian. The knight didn't feel anything of the sort and looked over at Mia to reassure her that there were no ghosts down there. He was taken aback to see her nodding in reply to Gobar. Is it haunted? She asked, not actually wanting to hear the answer. The gnome laughed. They are the twilight travellers. Those who, while they are sleeping, leave their bodies to visit other worlds. Mia looked over at Morian, who looked just as horrified as she was. Who are they? Morian asked nervously. Some are from this world, but others have passed through the veil from other worlds to look at us, as we do them. The travellers who are down here with us once came to look upon the dragon, but somehow their energy has become trapped. Now they roam these caverns, trying to find the portal back to their own world. 
The idea of being trapped down there in the dark sent Mia into a panic. Can't we show them the way out? She cried. Suddenly, a freezing cold gust of air spiralled around them, blowing Gobar's candle out and plunging them into darkness. Screams echoed through the chambers and Mia felt her spirit being lifted up out of her body. She moved upwards through the rock and down again into an open space where the ghostly white stag was waiting for her. It transported her through the veils that separated the different worlds until they found the physical bodies of the twilight travellers still in the place where they had fallen asleep. Some of them were just children tucked up in their beds, while two adults were lying in the sun under a strange-looking tree on a planet that she didn't recognise. One old man had fallen asleep in his chair. His dog sat beside him, waiting for him to wake up. And, in a spacecraft that was speeding through another universe, a woman slept soundly while her companion was cooking food on a circular blue flame. The stag travelled on and Mia followed him until eventually they passed through the dark tiled hall under the castle at Camelot. She hovered quietly above the statues until the silence was broken by high-pitched cries for help. Then she saw the faces of each enchanted man, woman and creature walking towards her and begging her to set them free. Mia put her hands over her ears and yelled for them to stop. Suddenly she felt herself being shaken awake by Morian. She was lying on the cave floor. The whirlwind had stopped. Gobar was holding the relit candle above her. Let's get out of here, she cried, stumbling to her feet. Before you have what you came for, said Gobar, pointing to a nearby wooden door. Morian was the only one strong enough to push it open, and it moved with a loud creak. On the other side of the door stood ten suits of armour, glowing with the magical orange light that only existed in metal that had been forged in dragon flames. Displayed on the wall and glowing with the same orange light was an array of swords and shields. The dragon's armour, laughed Morian with delight. Yes, said Gobar, examining its workmanship. The dragon's armour was forged by Tarask's flames and my ancestors' hands. Then predicting that Mir was about to ask a question, he explained, The dragon's armour and the blaze swords are the only weapons that have power enough to protect the wearer from ancient magic. King Arthur said that this weaponry existed, but none of the knights believed it, said Morian picking up one of the swords and swinging it in front of him. They thought that it was just legend, but I believed in it. That's why you were brought to it, said Gobar. Only those who believe will acquire. In no time at all, Morian and Mia were dressed in dragon's armour and Gobar was guiding them out of the tunnel. They were rubbing their eyes and getting used to the brightness when they heard Gobar making a strange musical sound. A moment later, two mountain dragons flew down and landed next to them. Gobar asked them to take Mia and Morian back to the castle. 
I will meet you there, he said. They climbed onto the creature's backs and soon the dragon village was far below them. Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 9 The Castle Guard Cats With their hard metal helmets and long shiny spears they have guarded the castle for thousands of years. They hadn't been in the air for very long when another grim shape appeared in front of them. It was a cylindrical mass of green cloud slowly circling around an enormous black hole. Mia and Morian gripped the dragon's back tightly and prayed that it wasn't doing what it looked like it was doing, flying right into it. They shouted for the dragon to stop, but it stayed on course. Within moments they were staring up at the gaping mouth of the hole. Then they felt themselves being pulled in. They screamed, but no sound came out of their mouths. The noise was crushed by the blackness of the tunnel. It was pitch dark and silent inside. The green mist moved in an anticlockwise tube around them, but it gave no light. And although they could no longer see the dragon, they could feel the pulsating of its great heart beating beneath them. Mia knew that there was nothing to do now except hold on and hope to see daylight again. They sped up, looping around the mist. Then the black hole spat them out, and after straightening up, they were happy to see the familiar sight of the mystical mountains ahead. They glided over a few tiny villages and meadows, and finally arrived back in Camelot. The dragon dropped them off a short walk from the castle. They know not to get too close, commented Morian, waving the dragon goodbye. They half expected to see Tarask there, tearing down the walls of the castle, and were surprised to find it still so quiet. I wonder where he is, said Mia. Yes, said Morian, it's not like Tarask to forgive. Then he turned to Mia and said, But come, Lady Mia of the world to come, show me the portal to the underground hall. He took the sword from its scabbard and held it up to the sun. Its long, wide blade gleamed a blood-red colour in the light. I can use this dragon blade sword to break the inside lock to the castle. Its dragon tail handle seemed to latch onto and grip Morian's hand. No lock will be strong enough to prevent us from finding Morgana. Unknown to them, as he turned the sword, it was reflecting and flashing beams of light towards the castle. They had attracted the attention of a tall, dark figure who was now standing at one of the higher windows, watching them. Mia showed Morian to the foxhole that led to the tiled hall, but it was gone, sealed up with a mound of earth and grass. They dug at the soil with their hands, but found nothing underneath. It was definitely here, said Mia. Morian nodded. Morgana has moved the portal to a new place. You'll not stumble across it so easily again. 
Our only way in now is through the castle itself. Mia shivered nervously. Do you think she knows we're here? Undoubtedly, he answered, looking up at the flock of birds that had appeared out of nowhere. She's watching us now. Mia tucked herself against the wall of the moat and looked into the forest to see whether she could see anyone. She could not take her mind off the shadowy figure that had chased her when she first arrived. Why doesn't she show herself? asked Mia. I don't know, Morian answered. She knows that you have broken through one of her enchantments already. I think that she is a little scared of you as none of us really knows what powers you've brought from your world. The mention of her world brought her thoughts back to Stickney Piggott. She desperately wanted to see him. Come on, she shouted to Morian as she ran towards the place where she had left him. They found Stickney preening himself and casually pulling some ivy from his trunk. Troublesome crawly critter! He was complaining, yanking at the spiny roots that had taken hold of his bark. He looked pleased to see Mia, but not nearly as pleased as she was to see him. Are you ready to go home? he asked. Mia desperately wanted to say yes, but then she looked over at Morian. He gave her a nod that said it was okay if she wanted to leave, although the dread of her actually going was written all over his face. She turned to Stickney and said, I've just got something to do first. She walked towards Morian. Right, shall we do this? She said, grinning. Morian laughed with pure relief. Indeed, my lady, he answered. They used the cover of the trees to make their way to the side of the castle. Keeping close to the stone walls, they crept round to the front and towards the main gateway. The portcullis was now raised, which meant that Morgana was home. They could see two guards, one on each side of the gate. They were tall, almost as tall as a human. Yet they were not human. They were cats, a black and white one and a marmalade coloured one. They sat with their backs against the wall, wearing protective breastplates from which two long legs and feet extended. Their helmets had a nose shield down the middle and two triangular points to protect their long ears. They each held a long spear in one of their paws. When the sound of a distant branch cracking made them bring their heads up, Mia was stunned to see that they had the strangest eyes. They were huge round discs of light that glowed like orange lanterns. Morian recognised them immediately and smiled. That's Jack and Jim, he said. They are brothers and I have known them since I was a child. Jack, the black and white one, he explained, is a particular favourite of the King's. While they were looking at Jack, who was casually licking his paw, they did not notice that Jim was glaring at him and thrashing his tail from side to side. When he was in a bad mood, the mere sight of Jack was enough to send Jim into a fury, and Jim was in a bad mood now. He flew at Jack and a yowling brawl began. Here they go again, said Morian, rolling his eyes. Although the guard cats were expert in martial arts and weaponry, they never used their spears when fighting each other. They preferred claw and tooth combat, 
the ancient way of settling minor scores. These cats are very strange, remarked Tamir. They have guarded the kings and queens of this realm for thousands of years. Thousands of years, gasped Mia. The oldest cat that she knew was her auntie's cat, Ronald, who was 12. These are no ordinary cats, continued Morian. They speak many different languages and fiercely guard whoever is on the throne without question. Despite the fact that it was currently flying all over the place, Mia noticed that their fur was in very good condition for such ancient cats. She suggested to Morian that they should go through the gate while the cats were distracted, but Morian warned her of the consequences of upsetting them. They will not harm us as long as we do not try to harm them or whoever is on the throne. We should be careful because they are full of magic. Mia understood that they needed to get the furry guards on board if they were to get into the castle. They waited patiently for the cats to finish their fight and when it looked like it was never going to end, Morian shouted, Hello, friends! The cats immediately stopped and looked up, still clinging to each other. Then recognising Morian, they broke hold and walked back to their posts, smoothing down their fur. They straightened their crooked helmets, picked up their spears and sat to attention. We need to enter the castle, guard cats, explained Morian. The cats ignored him and looked aloof. We are old friends, are we not? He said more forcefully. The Knights of Camelot and the guard cats have a mutual trust and respect. There was still no response and the cats began to wash casually again. We once fought side by side in battle. The cats looked at him. Morian gave Jim a deep blink, as old friends of cats do, and Jim blinked back. Morian, seeing that he had their attention for a moment, quickly continued. Morgana is a false queen. We need to put King Arthur back on the throne. As he walked forward, Jack and Jim crossed their spears to block him. They turned their heads away and started to wash again. He had to think fast. Do you remember how the knight Lancelot used to bring you fresh salmon from the river every day? Hearing the word salmon, they stopped licking and stared at him. The abruptness of the interruption resulted in Jack's tongue still poking out of his mouth. You could have that again if you help us to free him and the others from the curse. Then Mia remembered how much Ron liked having his ears rubbed. And I'm sure that the Knights of Camelot would give you all the ear scratches you wanted, she added. Mia and Morian were in the middle of trying to convince the cats to help, when Jim, suddenly and unexpectedly, began to fade away. Within moments, he had completely vanished. Where did he go? asked Mia, feeling very puzzled. She suddenly felt something gently tapping on her ear. She turned around and saw that Jim was sitting behind her with his arms stretched out in front of him. What are you doing? She laughed. She went to rub his nose, but he gave her a wink and then vanished once more. She spun around on the spot to see where he had gone. And when he reappeared, Jack was with him. The guard cats kept on disappearing and popping up somewhere else. It was sending Mia quite dizzy. Oh, keep still, she yelled. Morian was amused by their game. 
They are playing with you, he laughed. Even guard cats get bored. After a while, the cats decided to leave Mia alone and chase each other in and out of time portals instead. They used this opportunity to run towards the castle gatehouse, but as they reached the portcullis, the cats reappeared and blocked their entrance once more. It looks like they'll never let us in, Maureen sighed as Jack, with a turn of a wheel, lowered the heavy metal gate and locked it. They were walking away discussing how else they might get into the castle when they heard the hissing and spitting behind them resume. They turned to see that the guard cats had begun fighting again. There they were, rolling down the castle steps in a screaming interlocked ball of flying fur. They were just about to carry on walking when Mia's eyes were drawn to a large square object that was lying on the floor where the cats had been sitting. Look! she said, nudging Morian. It looks like a book. Morian looked at where she was pointing, but could see nothing. Checking that the cats were still distracted, Mia sprinted back to the gateway and grabbed it. Run! she shouted. They ran as fast as they could into the forest and did not stop until they had reached Morian's house, where the book suddenly showed itself to him. How on earth, he started to say, when he saw the time-worn cover. He took the book from Mia. It was thick, and the pages were old and discoloured. They opened it, but it was filled with words that Mia could not understand, and that were laid out like poems. This is an ancient language that is not used in these parts anymore, said Morian, flipping through the pages. These are enchantments. How can you tell? asked Mia. They are Theban words, he said, showing Mia the series of symbols on the page, the language of the first witches and alchemists. We had some schooling in this while I was training to be a knight. Morian studied the symbols and tried to work out what they were saying. I do not understand all of these symbols, he said after a while, but what I can read are the words of a madman, he paused while he continued reading. They talk of starting wars between different worlds and of wealth and power. I do not know what the guard cats were doing with this book, he said, but I think that it belongs to Morgana. It is truly amazing that this book showed itself to you and no one else, he said. I have more and more faith in your powers to defeat the witch. She'll be furious when she discovers that it's missing. Is there anything in it that we can use to stop her? They spent the next hour deciphering the last few enchantments for clues. Then Morian jumped with excitement. This is it, he cried. The spells that Morgana has used to give her power over the rulers of the realms. Look, here she talks of turning her enemies to stone. Does it say how to break the spell? asked Mia, hardly able to contain her excitement. Morian read on, mumbling the words under his breath, while he waited for the right ones to appear. Suddenly he shouted, Here! and he read the words out loud. They look for the magic to break my spells, but only the song from the dream fairy bells will free the defeated that bide in the hall, who idle in stone 
while their weak kingdoms fall. Tears of relief began to roll down Morian's cheeks. For too long I have waited for this moment, he said. Mia raised her hand to high-five him. What are dream fairy bells? Dream fairies are the sprites who play inside our heads when we are asleep, he replied. They bring us our dreams. Not many people have seen them. The idea that there were sprites that had access to her brain made her feel very weird. So these dream fairies can help us break the curse, she asked. Morian nodded. But how do we find one to talk to? Morian thought about it for a moment and then replied, I know exactly how. Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 10 The Dream Fairy There is only one way to get dream fairy bells. You must first fall asleep by a magical well. Within the hour, Mia and Morian were making their way back up the mystical mountains. Pushing her tiredness to the back of her mind, Mia turned her thoughts to having to take on Morgana. She wondered whether she and Morian would one day be read about in her storybooks, like Sir Lancelot and King Arthur. Maybe they will open their books and read about Mia, the saviour of Camelot, she thought, breaking into a skip at the thought of it. She stopped to take in the impressive views of the valleys below. The forest formed a silhouette against the orange and red sky that the setting sun was displaying. Ever since she had been put into care, she had so desperately wanted to know about her own history and where she came from. School did not teach her much that she could be proud of, and she felt that she never quite fitted in. But now, here she was, creating her own story. One that might be told again and again over the centuries. She gazed at the knight who was walking ahead of her. He was deep in his own thoughts. She could not help but feel sad that he was not written about in the Camelot stories, along with the other knights. Tell me about Sir Lancelot, she called out to him. Slowing down his pace slightly, Morian said, Lancelot is a good friend. When I came here from Africa as a child, he greeted me as a brother. We grew up together and have shared many adventures. We even trained to be knights together. For the rest of the climb, Morian enjoyed sharing memories of his friend, while Mia listened intently, soaking up every word. She had never had many friends, preferring to immerse herself in the books that gave her the hope that one day she would escape from her current life and be happy once more. They eventually passed the waterfalls and squeezed through the nook that led to the magical wells. The last of the sun disappeared below the horizon and the sky was darkening, so they decided to rest. They collected some fallen branches and Mia got the fire going. She was good at practical outdoor things like fire making and den building. That's why she loved being a Cub Scout. They took her on camps. It was good fun and although they were often in remote locations, she still felt less lonely than she did in the children's home. While eating some of the bread and fruit that they had taken from Morian's house, 
They chatted for about an hour and discussed their plan to bring the dream fairy to them. When Mia started to yawn, they knew that it was time to put their plan into action. They put out the fire and then walked over to one of the wells. Next to it, Mia lay down, wrapped a blanket around her and seconds later was fast asleep. Morian went and sat behind a gorse bush out of sight and waited. He reflected on the things that Mia had told him throughout the day, how dragons and witches could not be seen in her world and how man had destroyed the forest. He felt proud that the Knights of the Round Table were still spoken of though, but he chuckled at the thought that the world had come to know his friend Lancelot as a romantic character. Maureen could not wait to tell him, knowing that he would find it most amusing. A loud roar from above made Morian spring to his feet. The cold, dark night was replaced by a blanket of flames as at least ten dragons flew over. They were being led by Tarask and they were heading towards the castle. So it begins, he muttered. Come on, dream fairy, we are running out of time. The sky returned to its dark colour and Morian looked over at Mia. She was still asleep. He went back to his hiding place and kept an eye on the well next to her. A tiny flash of light appeared in the corner of his eye. He turned his head, but there was nothing there. He waited. There it was again, only this time brighter and more powerful. Suddenly, a whole series of brilliant white lights popped out of the well like bottle corks. Faster and faster they came, turning into bubbles in the air and bouncing on the mud as they dropped. Now, they were not so much bouncing as leaping into the air and surrounding Mia. Then the bubbles joined to become one, and inside, on a rocking chair, sat a tiny winged woman. A dream fairy. She steered the bubble so that it landed next to Mia's head. Morian watched from behind the bush and waited for his moment, knowing that if the fairy saw him, that she would disappear. That is rule number two in the Dream Fairy Handbook, that no dream fairy should ever allow a human to see him or her. She stepped out of her bubble and stood over Mia. Then she produced a small bell and quietly began ringing it above Mia's head. It was the dream fairy bell that Morgana had mentioned in her spell book. Morian became nervous, knowing that if he messed this up, both the fairy and their hope of freeing Camelot would vanish. With the music that was appearing from the bell, the dream fairy began to cast her musical spell to bring Mia her dreams. The musical notes began to form shapes which then entered Mia's head. The moment they touched her brain, she began to dream of running from dragons and fighting witches while trying to reach the Knights of Camelot. Even Odd Job was there, painting his leaves while all around him was chaos. Morian saw every dream that was being created and watched with interest to see what would happen next. Rule number six in the Dream Fairy's Handbook stated that 
A dream fairy must never break a dream halfway through, as this could banish the dreamer to the dream realm forever. Knowing that she would have to stick around until Mia's dream was fully played out, Morian let himself be seen. The dream fairy stepped back in horror to see a human in front of her, and she started to make a dash for her bubble. But then she remembered rule six and stopped. Not taking her eye off Morian for a moment, she slowly and nervously carried on ringing her dream fairy bell. Do not be afraid, Morian reassured her. I have come to beg for your help. He then kneeled down to make himself less intimidating. The dream fairy listened to his story and when he finished, she stopped ringing her bell and the dreams left Mia's head. With this, Mia woke up. Her eyes widened to see a fairy floating above her head and she remained perfectly still so that she did not scare her off. They watched as the fairy took out a wand and began to wave it around in her hand, as though she was conducting an orchestra. One by one, invisible instruments started playing a haunting, beautiful melody. The dream fairy then opened her mouth and a curious sound came out. A kind of singing, but not quite. Her voice moved through the air and formed musical notes that turned into pictures. In this way, she gave her answer to Morian's request. The grey witch whose hair floats above her like branches stares at you with eyes that cause avalanches and great fires and plagues and fierce lightning strikes that will turn you to stone and then she takes what she likes. A long time ago, the witch travelled this land, swishing her wand and then raising her hand to turn into statues, great knights, kings and queens, and wizards and dragons in great battle scenes. And all of them now stand as statues enchanted in a dark tiled hall until my song is chanted. My bell will ring out and fight Morgana's curse, but it will not be easy as she will bring worse. Not all will survive her treacherous spell. But we must start in the place where the petrified dwell. The fairy song ended and the pictures faded. And then, with only the moonlight as their guide, they all hurried to the castle. Mia and the Curse of Camelot Chapter 11 Morgana A spell that is starting to slowly unstitch is a terrible thing for a hideous witch. The grey witch crawled up the spiral staircase of the highest turret. The white cloud seemed to be moving more swiftly across the sky now and it disturbed her. She looked out of the window. The dark night did nothing to hide this meteorite of steam that was charging across the sky. In fact, 
It only made the fiery flares that were shooting from it more visible. It was not being pushed from behind or dragged by the breeze as other clouds were. This was being pulled from the front by an invisible force. Suddenly the white turned green and she screamed as the body of a gargantuan dragon plunged out of the mist and nosedived towards her. It bellowed and a deadly blast of flames exploded from its mouth. Then out from the cloud came another, slightly smaller dragon. And then another. Mia Morian and the Dream Fairy were now at the edge of the forest and watching with their jaws dropped the dramatic display above them. When the last dragon in Tarask's army had passed over, they ran towards the castle. Morgana knew that she was in trouble. Tarask was part of the reason that her body was now bent and twisted. In a panic, she hobbled back down the stairs and along the dark corridors until she reached the dungeon. With a swish of her wand, the door to the tiled hall flew open. She stood motionless for a moment as the uncomfortable feeling that she was being watched overwhelmed her. She did her best to ignore it as she fumbled around for one of the candles that she kept on a shelf behind the door and lit it. She held it out in front of her to check that no one was hiding in the shadows. Since she had discovered that the spell that sealed the room from the eyes of the outside world had a great big rip through the middle of it, broken by an unfamiliar force, she had lost some of her nerve. She walked among the statues, still with the feeling that she was being watched. She was right. The white expressionless eyes of her victims were following her across the room, still living a half-life inside their stony shells. Before she could take on the might of Tarask, she needed to check that old age had not weakened her power. She closed her eyes and called the incantations that surrounded the statues to her. She chanted. The first to show itself was a green, curling vapour that rose slowly from the ground and turned in a corkscrew movement in front of her. Then a purple vortex appeared in the air behind her. She continued, and a series of shooting stars shot through the darkness and looped the statues. Morgana opened her eyes and was relieved to see them. The fact that her spell was still intact fully restored her lost confidence and then her eyes turned black as she began to invoke her darkest magic. Her voice deepened and she paced up and down the hall with her wand held high, conjuring more coiling snake-like shapes that were no longer bright and colourful but now dark grey and menacing. They moved together to form one threatening hooded creature 
the same creature that Mia had encountered before. Soon, Morgana's voice became so low that it caused an earth tremor. Outside, Mia and Morian fell to the ground as the forest floor shook. What is it? cried Mia. I don't know, shouted Morian, barely audible over the rumbling noise. But we will soon find out. They got back onto their feet and continued the last of the short distance to the castle grounds. In the tiled hall, the statues were beginning to tremble, not because of the vibration of Morgana's voice, but because they were being called to battle. On the witch's command, the hooded creature touched each statue, breathing a dark life into them and turning them from white to grey. The first to move were Camelot's undead kings and queens, who, in one jerky movement, raised their swords and shields and turned to face Morgana. They then lurched forward awkwardly and began to stagger towards the open doorway, scraping the floor tiles of the hall as they went. Next to come alive were the knights of the round table. Their horses reared up with a hollow whinnying cry while the knights held on tightly to their reins. Their maces that had been held motionlessly in the air for years were now swinging freely around their heads. As they too moved towards the door, they narrowly missed smashing to pieces the gnome folk who were coming to life in the walkways that they lined. Finally, the cursed dragons gave an earth-shattering roar as they stepped down from their plinths and joined the ghoulish parade. When Mia Morian and the fairy arrived at the castle, a macabre sight greeted them. On one side of the lawn stood Tarask with his army of dragons lined up beside him. And facing them were Morgana's legion of statues, standing perfectly still and arranged in a military formation. Mia was terrified and moved her hand over her chest to check that the dragon armour was still there. They could see that Tarask too was greatly confused and troubled to be confronted by the family and friends that he had thought killed on the battlefield. Mia looked up at the castle roof and took a sharp intake of breath. This alerted Morian, who also gasped when he saw the sight before him. High up on a ledge and illuminated by the full moon was a woman whose beauty was once legend now looking as gnarled and ancient as the trees that surrounded her. Was this really Morgana Le Fay, the great empress who was once so envied and feared by all at Camelot? She was surveying the battlefield from above. The wind blew her long hair upwards so that it floated and separated into branches as it swayed from side to side. They waited to see what her next move would be. They did not have to wait long though, as the witch stretched out her arms to the side and with a blood-curdling cry, she ordered the statues to attack. 
Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 12, The Battle Begins. A witch that fights fiercely to rule earth and sky does not care a jot that many will die. They watch the Knights of the Round Table advance towards Tarask's dragons countless stone courtiers staggering behind. The blades of their swords had been returned to the shiny steel that they once were, and were just as sharp and deadly. We're too late, said the dream fairy. What? Quickly, go in and break the spell, pleaded Mia. The dream fairy shook her head. Alas, I cannot, she sighed. My musical bell only talks to those who are asleep. These poor souls are awake under an influence that is far greater than mine. Mia and Morian were devastated that their last hope was gone. Morian immediately drew the dragon sword and ran towards the impending battle, shouting, Find my horse and bring her to me, as he went. Come on said Mia to the weeping fairy. Let's go and look for Charger. The fairy bumbled along slowly, so Mia gave her bubble an encouraging prod. Cheer up, we can still help, but we need to move quickly. Mia could see that the fairy was annoyed at such prodding familiarity, but after giving Mia a disapproving look, she began to shift much faster. Everyone from the castle was now involved in the fighting, leaving the gateway open and unguarded. Mia looked around for the guard cats, but they were nowhere to be seen. They snuck in. Tarask and the dragons held their positions as the craggy knights got nearer. Now they were only a few feet away. Morian stood alongside them with the dragon sword held up, ready for combat. Do you think that your mortal weapons are any match for dragons? Came the air-shaking warning from Tarask as he exhaled a jet of flames over them. But the heat had no effect on the cursed figures and they continued moving forward. Morgana's shrieking laughter echoed through the night sky as she spat out mocking insults. The dragons, on seeing Morgana upon the roof, took to the air and flew towards her, leaving Morian alone on the ground. A hundred statues were now upon him, and his night training kicked in. Stand down, he commanded, holding the dragon sword out in front of him. Knights of the Round Table, you fight for King Arthur, not the witch. Morian could smell the putrid damp mould that clung to the knights as they pulled on the reins of their horses, rearing up and then surrounding him. They stopped. In one simultaneous movement, every stone man, woman, dragon and gnome looked at him. He shifted nervously. Then he spotted Lancelot. He took his chance to try and get through to whatever remained of his friend. Lancelot, he cried. It's me, Morian, son of Anglovale. Do you not recognise me? 
For an instant, a flash of recognition appeared in Lancelot's eyes. But then, the swirling black mist of Morgana's spell surrounded him, and it was gone. As the statues closed in on him, he used the dragon sword to block their blades and maces as they crashed down on him, and he ran towards the castle. Mia and the Dream Fairy made their way to the walled gardens at the back of the castle. The moonlight was enough to reveal the flowers in the beds that had long since died and lay rotting among the weeds. There were large ornaments of animals on the lawns, but no sign of Charger. As they walked through a brick archway, they entered another garden. This one was full of overgrown bushes that Mia presumed were once sculpted into shapes. She was just about to go through an old open gate when she spotted two familiar figures standing side by side. They had carved helmets with two pointed ears sticking out of the top. Jack, she cried, and Jim, oh no. She touched each of the castle guard cats on the nose and apologized for getting them into trouble. The sudden noise of dragons in the air above her made her jump. We'll be back to free you soon, she said, when it's safe. Then she and the dream fairy continued their search for Morian's missing horse. The pathways on the other side of the gate were even more overgrown than the gardens, and prickly brambles grew across them like spider webs. The fairy floated over them while Mia did her best to push them down with her feet and walk through them. A loud scrubbing noise came from one of the nearby shrubs. She looked over and saw that poking out from the bottom of it was a pair of long pointed cloth shoes standing on tiptoes. Next to them were a wooden bucket and a cloth. She walked around to the other side of the shrub and saw that it was Odd Job. He was surprised to see her, and even more surprised to see a fairy looking over his shoulder. Oh, thank goodness, he said. I thought you were the witch. He was cleaning one of the statues by the light of a candle that he had attached to his bucket. A terrifying cackle rang out overhead. It's okay, said Mia. She's still up there. What are you doing, Job? Don't you know what's happening out there? Job looked up and scratched his chin, but he seemed to be unbothered by the dragons flying overhead. He shrugged his shoulders and carried on scrubbing what looked like mould. Anyway, he said, ignoring what Mia had just said, I was pleased that you stopped by in the forest and said hello. You reminded me that I still had the keys to the cellar doors and that I hadn't given my lords and ladies a good clean for a while. I've been sneaking them out one by one and getting rid of the mould. It's extremely damp down there. It grabs hold of them so quickly. Then he stood back with his hands on his hips and looked satisfied that this one was finished. Poor old Merlin here had green patches all over him. It would have made him feel quite itchy. Mia's jaw dropped as our job turned the statue around and she saw the unmistakable carved beard, pointed hat and robes of Camelot's most powerful wizard. Merlin, 
she shouted, jumping for joy. Job, you brilliant man! I think that you've just saved Camelot. The dream fairy did not wait for the signal. She took out her bell and began to ring it over the wizard. Suddenly, there was a loud bang as part of the roof of the castle came crashing down. Mia, Job and the dream fairy ran and when they looked back, they saw that Merlin had been crushed under a pile of rubble. Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 13, Charger A friend in need is a friend indeed, but a friend who's a steed is better. Mia looked up at the castle roof and saw Morgana raise her hands towards the sky once more as she commanded a series of forked lightning bolts to come crashing down. The dragons soared and swooped to avoid them as they opened fire on her with a barrage of fireballs. Without hesitation, Morgana made a circling motion around her body, creating a protective shield that caused the flaming missiles to explode on impact. There were not just fireballs for them to contend with now, but a continual stream of smaller burning projectiles that rained down onto the garden. Stop! screamed Mia. You're going to destroy the whole of Camelot! But they continued to come, and she and her companions had no choice but to take shelter in one of the stone porchways and watch and pray as the sparks set the dried vegetation alight. Tarask lunged at Morgana and she immediately spun round on the spot before bursting into a flock of crows which flew over the mystical mountains. The dragons flew after her. Now, apart from the odd distant crack of thunder and dragon roar, the air was silent. Odd Job ran to get his bucket and flapped around, making a heroic but useless attempt to put out the fires. But the flames did not burn for too long anyway. As soon as they hit the damp leaves underneath, they were snuffed out. Bob breathed a sigh of relief. They looked at the big hole that was in the roof and the side of the castle and shed tears at the piles of stone that covered Merlin. He'll have been crushed to bits! wept Mia, who was by now tired of the seemingly impossible task of trying to help Camelot. There's no way he could have survived that. The dream fairy tried desperately to find a small gap to squeeze through to try and help the wizard, but there was no way in. Mia and Bob agreed that they must at least see and started digging through the rubble. Morian clambered over the bricks that had fallen inside the castle and narrowly missed him. The clunk, clunk sound of the statues hunting for him was getting louder. They were now inside the castle as well, and he knew that they would soon be upon him. He climbed out of the hole where the kitchen once was and ran through the gardens towards Mia. He was pleased to see his old friend Bob, but there was no time for a proper greeting. Did you find Charger? He asked Mia. She quickly explained about Merlin. I presumed that he was with the other statues, he replied. 
The sound of the clunking got louder. We must move swiftly. Leave Merlin for now. I need my horse if I'm to stand any chance against our cursed friends, he said, ushering them into the next walled garden as the statues came marching around the corner. Bob fumbled nervously for his keys and then locked the rusty gate behind them. Quickly, we stand more chance if we split up, said Morian. Mir disappeared down a path which followed a small stream that ran through the grounds. She was glad to see something natural again, although she soon thought differently when she saw all the statues that stood on the other side. For a moment her heart jumped, but then she realised that they were still sleeping, undisturbed by Morgana's call to battle. They all had the finest carved clothes and jewellery, and it was clear that they were royalty, or at least they were once. The noise of the disturbed leaves as she ran hid the faint whispers that were coming from them. Further down, the stream split into two, with one part diverting to a small pond. She cringed to see that somebody, probably Morgana herself, had placed some of the gnome folk around the edge. As a final act of humiliation, she had placed fishing rods in their hands. A light breeze brought with it a charcoal smell, and she saw that the dragon fire had burnt a large section of the garden ahead. As she scanned over it, something caught her eye. It was an object that was glistening in the moonlight. Moving closer, she could see that something bulky-looking was sticking out of the charred grass. She took out her torch and shined it on the object. It was a statue made of green marble, although most of it was buried in the earth. She began to pull at the soil and weeds that covered it. Soon, a horse's head was revealed. Mia called loudly to the others. The dream fairy was the first to arrive. She hovered above the statue and then pulled on a short rope that was dangling from the roof of her bubble, which made the bubble drop lower so that she could examine it. Soon, Morian and Job arrived, and Morian immediately began to uncover the back of the statue. There it was. There was no mistaking the carved wavy cloth and simple saddle that he had been given on completing his night training. Charger! he exclaimed excitedly, patting her back. Don't worry, my princess, we will soon get you out of here. A few minutes later, Charger was free. Her stone legs were bent and in the air as if she had been struck by the curse in mid-canter. Thank goodness she is still in one piece, said Morian. The distant noise of the gate being rattled silenced him. Stand back, said the fairy. They are coming. She took out her bell and began to wave it over the marble horse. A stream of musical notes began to appear in the air. Mia could not just hear them, she could see them too, and it was as though they were coming in from every part of the universe. Then the fairy began to sing her curse-breaking spell. It was a strange chanting sound that joined with the bell's chimes, becoming one magical sound. Mia was mesmerised. She was not the only one. A quiet sigh came from each of the sleeping statues 
as the notes waltzed around them, leaving a coil of vibrant colours behind as they moved. The notes touched each statue lightly, making them shake as they bounced from one figure to the next. Then they surrounded Charger. The vibrations of the music caused her marble casing to crack, releasing a brilliant white light from within. The statue prison shattered into tiny pieces, releasing the horse from the curse. Charger gasped for air, and with Morian's encouragement, she stumbled to her feet. She shook herself and reared up, whinnying so loudly that the knights who were now smashing through the garden wall with their maces stopped and listened. The notes then moved on to the other sleeping statues in the garden, surrounding them and breaking their curse. One by one, the garden prisoners looked up at the sky and drew breath for the first time in years. No one noticed that one of the musical notes had not joined the others. It had gone off on its own and made its way to the pile of stones that had fallen on Merlin. It was tiny enough to sneak through a small gap and make its way down to the wizard. A few seconds later, the stones began to shake and then slowly they moved apart. Morian and Charger greeted each other with affection and he thanked his friends before jumping onto her back and racing towards the undead knights. Mia ran around, gathering up all the gnomes and confused members of royalty and led them round the back of the garden to the safety of the castle. When they were hidden, she ran back to the place where Merlin had been buried and was stunned to find that the rubble had all been moved. As she stood there staring in bewilderment, a voice from behind made her jump. Are you looking for me? Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 14 Dragons and Curses A dragon sword chooses the one with the power to bring in the light during the darkest hour. Mia turned round, and there, in front of her, stood Merlin. His robes, which before were stony grey and still, now blew freely in the wind, their golden thread casting a warm light around him. I'm sorry, she said, realising that she'd been standing there with her mouth wide open for quite some time. She pointed at the rocks lying on the ground. I... I... How did you get out? Merlin was about to answer when the dream fairy appeared. Ah, Alina, he said, smiling at his old friend. I must thank you. It seems that one of your musical spells was responsible for freeing me. Mia felt a little embarrassed that she had not asked the fairy whether she had a name. She just presumed that she was called Dream Fairy. Then he said to Mia, Once I was awake, it was not much effort to conjure magic enough to move the rocks that buried me. When I saw you entering the tiled hall, 
I felt that you were sent here to free us from Morgana's curse. I was right. I thank you too. He then bowed towards her. Mia blushed as she bowed back, not knowing whether this was the right response. I think that it was more luck than anything, but you have no idea how pleased I am to see you, she replied. She spoke quickly and explained everything that had happened. The other statues are still under Morgana's spell. She's brought them to life and Samorian is fighting them and Morgana is up there fighting with the dragons and Camelot is still cursed and... and it's all a mess. I don't know what to do. Please help. Merlin used his staff to steady himself. I feel quite weak, he said, so my magic may not be enough to fight her alone. He noticed Mia's dragon armour. But combined, we stand a chance. He looked up at the sky. The wind was getting stronger and it brought with it a loud snapping noise, like the sound of wings beating. It got louder and louder and everyone in the castle stopped talking and listened. They rushed outside and looked towards the moon as a ridged battle dragon, twice the size of Tarask, flew across it. It turned and headed towards them. They ran back through the castle, intending to escape through the forest, but when they ran across the drawbridge, they saw its silhouette circling above them. A black choking cloud of smoke gushed from its mouth and filled the air so that no one could see or breathe for a minute. When it cleared, Mia saw that Morgana was sitting on its back, steering it with short, cruel jerks on the reins. She let go with one hand and with a swipe of her wand, a second dragon appeared in the air. To begin with, it moved with the same slow twisting motion as the smoke, and then long, thin, flowing rivers of boiling lava appeared all around its body, leaving islands of ash-like scales separating them. The lava dragon soared upwards, dripping burning red magma from its feet and wings. It looked like a flying, erupting volcano. Run! shouted Merlin as the dragon turned and faced them. Everyone ran towards the trees. We have to warn Morian, cried Mia. But a moment later, she was pulled up onto his horse as he raced past. Still having fun, Morian said with a panicked laugh. They had barely made it to the forest when Morgana raised her wand for a second time and a bolt of lightning crashed down from the sky. It hit the trees and a cluster of them burst into flames. One of them was Stickney Piggott. Stickney! Mia shouted, running over to him and trying to smother the flames with her cloak. Mia was devastated, not only for Stickney and the other oaks, but because of the realisation that her only way home was being destroyed. Morgana's voice appeared in the air. You ripped through my magic, so now I will shatter yours. A chill ran down Mia's spine, but she tried to ignore it as the others joined her to help put out the fire. 
Merlin raised his staff above his head and chanted a spell. And to Mia's surprise, in flew the gloomy cloud, followed by a further ten identical clouds. She was overjoyed to see it again. When they saw the burning trees, the clouds instantly became grey and dark. Each chose a tree and hovered above it, raining so hard that the fires were soon put out. This magic sapped most of Merlin's energy and he had to sit down to rest. She was just about to check on Stickney, who she hoped was just sleeping, when she was disturbed by the clank, clank of the statues approaching. Morian went to drive them back and was once more thrust into battle. The freed people looked at their weapons. They were old and decaying and no use to anyone. Suddenly, there was a loud clang and Mia saw that gnomes were appearing one by one out of the ground, led by Gobar. They were using one of Molly Mel's portals and had come armed with weapons and armour. Hello, shouted Mia. Over here! Gobar and his soldiers were carrying the highest quality shields and swords. I hope we haven't missed anything, he said. It's been years since we had a good fight. The gnome soldiers began handing out newly forged weapons. Soon everyone was heading out to join Morian on the battlefield. Merlin, starting to feel more like himself, warned them not to damage any of the statue prisoners in case their injuries might stay with them afterwards. When they were lined up, Morgana and the battle dragon hovered above the warriors as she appointed herself referee. She shouted a command and the lava dragon joined the statues. There were gasps of horror from the other side when it landed and they were forced to shield their eyes from the roasting heat that was coming from it. Morgana declared the start of the battle and the cursed statues charged forward. Luckily for Mir and Morian's army, the statues were too heavy to move swiftly and so they were able to outride and outrun their strikes. Morgana commanded the stone dragons to take to the air, but they were too heavy to fly and she wailed with frustration as they hopped along the ground. Another order was given and the lava dragon began to spray flames from its mouth, sending everyone running to safety. Only Merlin stayed where he was. He began to chant. As the wizard repeated these words, the oozing rivers of lava on the dragon's body began to slow down, causing it to weaken. And then they began to freeze. And eventually the creature turned to ice, frozen to the spot. Morgana screamed in anger as with one last set of words from Merlin, the ice dragon shattered into pieces. Merlin then stared at Morgana and raised his staff, but she did not stick around long enough to see what he was planning. She took to the skies, landing on top of the castle. Mia ran towards Morian and shouted, Pass me the dragon sword, I'm going up to the roof. He looked at her curiously until she continued. 
I'm no match for an army of knights, but I can cause damage to Morgana's spells. I shall fight her up there. Morian grinned and handed her the dragon sword. As soon as she held it, it began to glow, and then a great rush of energy filled her body, and she suddenly felt invincible. What just happened? she asked. I knew that you had great power here. The dragon sword has felt it too. The fate of Camelot rests in your hands now, he smiled encouragingly. Mia nodded and then ran towards the castle. Mia and the Curse of Camelot, Chapter 15 Farewell, Camelot. When you believe in good things, you can make them come true. Just search in your heart and you'll know what to do. What am I doing? thought Mia as she ran upstairs to the roof of the castle keep. Being inside felt very lonely and she had no plan of what she was going to do when she finally came face to face with the witch. She opened the door to the roof a few inches and peered through. There was no sign of Morgana, but Mia could sense that she was nearby. A rotten, fishy smell hit her nose, confirming it. She pushed the door a little more and spied the battle dragon perched on the outer wall of the tower. Up close it was even more intimidating, 20 feet tall at least and just as wide. Its scales looked like thick tiles of dark copper armour layered around the spiny horns that covered its neck and head. Morgana was hanging onto one of the horns as she watched the battle unfold below. The ends of her long ragged hair floated upwards like coral in water while her moth-eaten dress and cloak blew behind her like the sails of a ship. The sight made Mia shiver. She looked at the dragon sword in her hand. What should she do now? She did not have to wonder for long because, without warning, Tarask's face appeared over the ledge behind the witch and drifted silently around the tower until his toothy mouth and yellow eyes were inches from hers. The other dragons circled them. Morgana pulled on the battle dragon's reins and it took to the sky. Its claws gripped Tarask and a ferocious airborne fight began. Merlin, who was still too weak to engage in the physical combat, had been busy thinking up a plan. He had been watching the knights and the gnome-led army charging around the statues, trying to trick them into going into the dried-up moat, which was deep enough to trap them. But Morgana's magic was too clever for that, and they were not falling for it. With no other plan of how to deal with them without hurting them, the Camelot army were becoming discouraged. Seeing that Tarask had taken Morgana's attention from what was happening down on the ground, the wizard summoned what little magic he could. Holding out his staff in front of him, he brought the end crashing to the ground and immediately the earth began to tremble. And then the lawn swelled up like an ocean wave before dipping down deep below the surface. 
Up and down it went, sending everyone on the battlefield toppling over. When the last of the statues had fallen on its side, Merlin ordered the ground to calm. Without delay, and while everyone felt confused and seasick, he conjured a green ball of light and rolled it along the ground. It formed a blanket over each of the statues and sent them to sleep. The dream fairy immediately floated in and awakened the sleeping bodies from their enchantment. Mia stood up on the roof, shifting from foot to foot nervously as she watched the blows that were being exchanged above her head. Tarask might have been smaller than the mammoth battle dragon, but he more than made up for it in fighting capability. Morgana hung onto her dragon's neck for dear life as they corkscrewed through the air in pursuit of each other. Somehow the witch was able to let go with one hand and whip out her wand. In no time at all, another newly created lava dragon was dripping fire onto those below as it soared through the air. Morian and the knights ran to rescue the freed people and animals from the path of the fiery rain. Tarask recoiled at the appearance of the supernatural creature and was even more baffled when countless wooden torches filed out of the darkness of the battle dragon's smoky breath. One by one, they magically lit themselves and marched around Tarask's dragons, who, being terrified of torch flames, flailed their legs and wings, trying to escape their scorching nudges. The battle dragon swung around and swiped Tarask with its tail, knocking him unconscious. He fell from the sky and plummeted to the ground, and the other dragons fled. Mia shouted out, her cry alerted Morgana, who looked across and saw her standing on the roof. An evil smile spread across her face. This will finish you, foolish girl, she laughed, and then the lava dragon began to bombard Mia with fireballs. Mia ran to the door of the tower, but it had jammed shut. With no way to avoid them, and repeating to herself that she had the power to defeat Morgana's magic, she swung the dragon sword and with an almost superhuman force pounded each ball back towards the witch. Morgana darted out of the way, resulting in one of the flaming missiles hitting the lava dragon at great speed and blasting it into two halves. Mia saw that inside was just a mass of flames with nothing except magic holding it together. The lava dragon exploded. Down towards Mia came another series of bewildering flashes as Morgana unleashed a volley of electrical spells down on her. The dragon armour and sword was battered, but it held up well, protecting her against Morgana's attack. In a blind fury, the witch threw a bolt of lightning at Mia, determined to defeat her, even if it destroyed the castle entirely. Mia swung the sword one last time and the lightning hit the battle dragon's armour, making him lose his balance and sending him nosediving towards the floor. Morgana screeched as she tried to regain control of the beast. She fell from the saddle but was saved from death by hanging onto his reins high above the ground. Seeing the shells of her statues lying on the lawn, she began to chant. 
and their stone limbs began to move once more, fixing themselves back together and stumbling to their feet. This time her stone army would fight without their prisoners. Mia saw Merlin raise his staff above his head and send up a spell that snapped the battle dragon's reins. Morgana plunged to the ground without completing her spell. The battle dragon flew away. Instead of letting her hit the ground and die, Merlin broke her fall a metre above and suspended her there, unable to move. The wizard then took her wand and put a spell on her voice so that she could no longer harm anyone. Morgana was horrified when she saw all of her cursed prisoners liberated and walking towards her. They marched her off to the tiled hall where they kept her prisoner until later that week when Merlin was able to transport her back to her lake prison and reseal the veil around her. Mia used the dragon sword to break the lock of the tower door and then she ran down the stairs and out of the castle towards where Tarask's lifeless body was lying on the floor. Morian, the gnomes and dragons were gathered around him, weeping at the sacrifice he had made to save them. He fought so bravely, sobbed Mia. Everyone took off their hats and kneeled down next to him. High up in the mystical mountains, Molly Merle was staring into her magical crystal well, watching the events in Camelot. She picked up her broom and her wand and jumped into one of her portals. Within moments, she was standing alongside the mourners. Goodness me, she said, looking at all the destruction. She looked down at Tarask and without hesitation, she waved her wand towards the castle. Magical blue water started to rise from the moat until it was full. Then, using one of Oddjob's buckets, she poured some of the water over the dragon. They all stood back as his body began to glisten with blue sparkles. And then, in a breathtaking moment, his spirit rose from his body. Next to him appeared the white stag. He's come to take Tarask to his next life, whispered Merlin. He looks very peaceful, Gobar sniffed, trying to hide the single tear running down his face. The stag bowed to Tarask, and then the two ghostly creatures bounded through the sky and towards the golden beams of the rising sun. Where are they going? asked Mia sadly. The stag is taking him back to another moment in time where he was happiest, said Merlin. Mia was confused, so he continued. All of our happiest moments are kept and stored away. Then, when it is time to leave the soil, we simply choose which of them we want to go back to. We never really die, we just move to a different time. So while we miss them, Mia said, somewhere in time, they still have us, and we still have them. That's right said Merlin, but we have to wait for the white stag to come and lead us there, for only he knows where they are kept. This thought comforted Mia, knowing that somewhere in time she was still with her family. 
The green forest dragons arrived at the castle and scurried around nursing everyone's wounds with an ointment of herbs that they had brought from the dragon realm. Molly Mel soaked some of the leaves with her magical well water, forming soothing bandages, and the dragons placed them over the charcoal barks of the burnt trees. This will do the trick, she said, as the potion trickled down their trunks and onto their roots. As soon as Stickney Piggott felt the tingle of the ointment, he woke up. That's better, he said, shaking himself awake. He blinked his large eyes at Mia and smiled. I do apologise. I fell asleep. I hope that I didn't miss anything. Mia laughed. Don't worry, Stickney. You didn't miss a thing. The whole court turned towards Mia, Morian and the Dream Fairy and with their hands over their hearts, they bowed in gratitude. The fairy, seeing the first colours of daylight appear, returned their bow and then waved goodbye as she floated away. Oddjob strode past Mir and Morian with a ladder tucked under his arm. There was much to do, he muttered, as he briefly stopped and looked up at the collapsed roof and walls. I had better get started he said with a beaming smile. Mia was pleased that the caretaker was finally going back to the life that he loved. In the gardens, the gnome folk busied themselves, capturing the final wisps of Morgana's magic and throwing them into the blades of a giant portable mill wheel, which then revolved and dragged them deep underground. King Arthur looked thoughtfully up at his castle before making his way back towards the entrance. Jack and Jim, who were now back standing guard, bowed low as he walked through. The other monarchs, who had been cursed long ago, followed King Arthur over the drawbridge and then faded away, each travelling back to their own time in history and living out their lives as they were meant to do. Mia said, Morgana is still alive, so why are the guard cats letting King Arthur and the others back in? A realisation dawned on her. She ran over to the guard cats. You opened the portal to the hall for me, didn't you? She said. You weren't really protecting Morgana by not letting us in, were you? You were protecting us. And I suppose that you deliberately let us find Morgana's spell book, didn't you? Added Morian. The guard cats purred and bunted her gently with their heads, allowing her to rub their noses. So I didn't have the power to break through Morgana's spell after all, she said quietly, shivering at the realisation of the risk she had just taken. Of course you did, came a voice from behind. It was Merlin. The dragon sword only gives strength to those who believe in themselves, and while you held it, you indeed felt powerful enough to beat her. Those who truly believe can do anything. Mia and Morian sat down and watched the red sky turn to blue as a new day arrived. Well, I suppose that I should be going home too, said Mia, looking towards the forest. Morian looked sad. Can you not stay? he asked. Mia shook her head slowly. My own world needs healing too, she said. Now that I have the courage, I shall look for my new quest there. Morian understood. We owe you a great debt, Mia, he said. I will never forget you. 
and I will make sure that my world never forgets you either, she replied, giving him a hug. Mia wiped a tear from her eye and took one last look at Camelot and then went to find Stickney. I'm ready to go home now, she said to the tree. With those words, Stickney Piggott took a deep breath and as he exhaled, shards of brilliant white light poured out of his trunk. The doorway opened and the leafy stairway was there waiting for her. She waved goodbye to Morian and with a leap, Stickney Piggott took to the air. Mia knew that she would miss Camelot and the friends that she had made there and so took one last look behind her. She was overjoyed to see the white stag and Tarask flying past and that the twilight travellers were following them. The old man, the child and all the others were going home. Tarask must have gone back and freed them, she said to Stickney. But he wasn't listening. He was busy looking out for those ill-mannered mountain dragons. The oak tree landed back on the playing field near Mia's house and she could hear Cairo barking nearby. As she walked down the magical staircase, she noticed that the bookcase had disappeared, but Samorian's book was lying on the floor. She picked it up and opened it. The pages were no longer blank. They were filled with words telling the story of his life at Camelot. And as she promised, later that day, she left it at the library for others to read.